This week, we welcome Jason Nicola, the CEO and Senior Security Consultant at Pulsar Security, to talk about building an InfoSec career. In our second segment, we welcome back Sven Morgenroth, Security Researcher at NetSparker, to talk about HTTP security headers in action. In the security news, hackers target air-gapped networks of the Taiwanese and Philippine military, stored cross-site scripting in WordPress Product Review Lite plugin allows for automated takeovers, remote code execution vulnerability in uh, VMware Cloud Director, a Shodan scan of new pre-auth remote code execution vulnerabilities shows 450,000 devices at risk, including all QNAP devices, and the top three cybersecurity myths, uh, according to one source. Uh, All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady, it's Paul's Security Weekly. Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single, unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR, vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. And welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to a man who just figured out that resistance is futile, Mr. Paul Sidorian. Welcome to Paul Security Weekly. It's episode 652, recorded on May 21st, 2020. I'm here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. My illustrious uh, hosts for the show are also on the lines remotely. Uh, Mr. Lee Neely is with us. Lee, welcome. Uh, great to be here from uh, southwestern Idaho. Just looking out the window, we got a bunch of snow on the hills around us. Very yeah. interesting weather for May. Interesting. Mr. Tyler Robinson is at 72% also in Idaho. Welcome, Tyler. Um, I thought I was doing pretty good at 72%. Right. Mr. Jeff Mann up there, also on the lines remotely, is at 100% which is just phenomenal. It's awesome. You're fully charged. Chef is fully charged and ready for the show. Winning. (sighs) Tyler, you got a little work to do before you're fully charged. I mean, I don't know if I can ever keep up with uh, Mr. Mr. Jeff. (laughs) That's true. Of course, Mr. Larry Peche is here with us. Larry's at 10%, but he's charging. That's good. That's good. Yep. Yep. For those that only listen to the audio, Tyler uses a camera that he is unable to turn off the on-screen display. Uh, so it shows how much recording time looks like six hours five minutes he has left and in the other corner it shows his battery life percentage which just went down from 72 to 71 for those keeping track at home (laughs) there's a pool going to see what the number is going to be by the end of the show great (laughs) we should just have an audience contest whoever whoever guesses it gets the free hack naked t-shirt or something 
In any case, uh, <laughs> join us virtually at InfoSec World 2020, June 22nd through the 24th. Uh, Security Weekly listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World main conference or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2020. Click the register button to register with our discount code. Jason Nicola. Did I say that right, Jason? You are one of the few people on the face of the planet that says it right the first time. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, I thought like cola, like the soda cola. Uh, so Jason is yeah. a senior security consultant and COO at Pulsar Security, specializing in penetration testing and red teaming. He's also a SANS instructor for the Network Penetration Testing and Ethical Hacking course. Jason, welcome. You're also a, a podcast host too. I am. I am. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's great to be here. Now, what's interesting... Uh, this is like Inception because I'm going to ask you how you got your start in information security and then we're going to do like an entire segment about right. getting your start in information security. Not even right. so much like a how-to, but uh, I think a very interesting discussion from multiple sh perspectives. Jason, yeah. how did you get your start in information security? So for me, it's, um, it's, it's maybe the worst story because I started out as a salesperson. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was younger, like a lot of people don't. So I said, oh, I'll major in business and study accounting and finance and eventually got a job at a very, very small software company and um, did that for long enough to realize that uh, exclusively is great for a lot of people, but uh, wasn't good enough for me. Um, and the company that I was at was small enough that I could say, hey, I want to learn how to code and I want to start learning technology and um, did that just enough so that when we had a customer issue that no one else was available to diagnose, I you know, dove into the code and took a weekend and, and did what I had to do to try to get it figured out and then um, uh, you know, made enough headway that they let me transition into a more technical role. Um, and I started doing help desk and did a lot of pre-sales engineering and always did security on the side when I could find um, gigs doing it and just practicing on my own and, and gaining skills and then eventually it developed into a, what I think is the best career in the world. What, uh, tell me about your build you got there in the background. Oh, boy. Yeah, so uh, this was my first uh, project for a quarantine. Um, mm. It was time. I did, I did one of those too, yep. Yeah, and uh, I went with the biggest case that I could find purposefully because I'm terrible at hardware and uh, things that are meticulous and actually keeping track of what I'm doing and not dropping things and planning for space. So I got a giant thermal take case, a uh, couple Titan, RTX Titans, a bunch of fans. Um, yeah. Sweet. It's awesome. I like the it's, I like the it's, it's loud. Yeah, I just I leave the fans all the way up because it um, it impresses people. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, that's awesome. <clears throat> um, so, tell us about you. You're doing a a podcast for Sands, correct? Yes. So, uh, like you said, I, I'm on the Sands instructor track, and and right now I teach Sec five sixty, um, and somehow. Along the way, um, I had this project kind of dropped on me, and um, uh, GIAC came to me and they said, we want to do a podcast about um, you know, technical things, but also where the focus is more on how did these people that you see in the industry that are visible, that have had some success, how did they get their start? What were their challenges along the way? How they overcome them? Uh, with a real focus on things like imposter syndrome. So uh, one of the things that I've 
always found to be really refreshing is when people who have made it or uh, are really well known and, and very successful are just kind of open and honest about look um you know what you see now and even um what you've seen on the on the rise isn't necessarily always reality there's a lot of struggles along the way so uh it's been a really cool experience to talk to some uh really capable and awesome people about how they got their start how they built and um you know what struggles they had along the way and 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 how they got past them and continue to get past them right because you you don't really ever arrive you just get different challenges and hopefully they're better ones but um it's been a cool experience hosting that show so far it's called trust me i'm certified yeah uh, you know i think it's interesting uh <laughs> that we ask the question of all of our guests how do you get you started in information security we let them answer and then we move on right, right. your show focuses on that one question which right. i, thought, I yeah. thought was a very interesting and unique and, and awesome perspective right and I started out with a lot of assumptions. Um, so I assumed that there was a, a standard track. And you've probably seen this asking the question across, mm. you know, 600 plus episodes. Uh, there really isn't. Um, it, everyone starts by saying, you know, my path was a little bit different or I didn't follow the standard model or I didn't do X, Y, Z. I did ABC instead. Uh, so I think at least in terms of where the InfoSec industry is now, um, there isn't a standard path just because, you know, 10 years ago, um, as soon as 10 years ago, there wasn't as much of an opportunity to, to major in cybersecurity or um, as, as much a, a big industry uh, as there is now. There weren't many security billion dollar valuations, you know, a decade uh, or more ago. Right. Um, so I think we might start to see that change as higher ed and, and the rest of the world catches up. But at least for right now, the common thread is that there there really isn't a standard model. Um, and there might be advantages and disadvantages to that. What I, what I think is really interesting to discuss is uh, in the very early days, right, there really was no security industry, a cybersecurity right. industry, I should say, right? Yeah. Um, and there were some people that were doing security, right? But there really wasn't an industry to have a path into, <laughs> so right. to speak, right? There were people right. doing security and that's uh, and that was that. Then... I think, uh, you know, as we got into the late 90s, um, there started to be paths into security, right? Right. Because there was this thing, you could be a security engineer. Those were, right. for a long time, very non-traditional paths into security. Right. Then I think, you know, like you said, around 2010 or so, there started to be more and more opportunities to have a formal path, right? I could right. go to school and learn this stuff mm -hmm. and... There is a path for me to be entry level SOC analyst and uh, you know in various roles. Right. Um, it, it's it's interesting to to talk about you know kind of uh, the way back past the past the present and then what the future is going to look like. Like what's right. it going to look like to break into security twenty years from now? Right. Yeah. And a lot of the things that we hear from people before kind of that watermark that you you put there in the 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 late nineties mm -hmm. is that you kind of had to force security onto people. It's like, you know, I'm a sysadmin or a network engineer or developer, and, and you have to go make your case for why you should spend more of your time focusing on security. Um, right. Or, I mean, we, security wasn't even really, I mean, a lot of us back then were like, I need to uh, help my friend, uh, you know, crack the code so that they can play this video game, right? right. Or I need yeah, to, you know, yeah. hack my DOS system with a different right. memory so that the game will actually run, right? It was right. basically a necessity. Yeah. Well, there was and also phone freaking, and there was also mm -hmm. oh, uh, sure. ca yeah. cable hijacking. Yep. 
um, and then there was also like you know a DOD mission, but yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, but I mean, we still have a lot of those same problems now, where um, you have to make your case a lot of times. But you know, hopefully, it's it's getting better. Um, and I, I think there are more opportunities now because there are some of the standard, what we would call standard tracks, as you mentioned. Um, but then I also wonder if if you lose the opportunity to really get that generalist baseline um, and there's a larger conversation around whether or not people should specialize or get more general skills overall. Um, but at least for me and in a lot of the people that I've talked to and, and worked with having had time to, you know, write some code and configure networks and support customers and build systems and, uh, you know, all of the other various aspects of technology um, that we've built baselines in is so, so beneficial from a security perspective, not just uh, offensive security, but defensive as well. Um, and yeah, Jason, so, you know, on that point, I think it's really interesting. We were talking before the show about, you know, my uh, research project, one of my research projects this week was, you know, I bought this audio adapter. I've been doing podcasting yeah. 15 years, you know, and for a long time I ran a lot of the cables, configured the gear myself, right. uh, kicking myself for not studying some of this stuff <laughs> at this detail sooner, right? Right. But, like, I have no idea. I still, like, there's a lot of uh, significant gaps in knowledge about how electrical right. signals work and audio works, and it really comes down to, like, physics and electrical engineering. So, now I'm like, well, right. I want to know how this one little adapter works. I'm like... You know, I haven't really taken the time to truly understand, uh, you know, the relationships between voltage and current and how impedance right. and resistance and all that stuff. Because, you know, like we were talking before the show, you know, I get a couple of paragraphs in and then all of a sudden there's these big mathematical formulas. And I'm like, <laughs> I just want to plug cables in and make right. the show work. Right. Um, but when I thought about it, I'm like, you know, it's very similar to, like you said earlier, that folks should have some hands-on experience do some very fundamental and lower level things such as programming. Right. I would also, I, my kind of relation uh, to that was people should understand how TCP IP works, right? Of course. And, and understand course. how the internet works, understand the key protocols like DNS and SMTP and right. all the TCP headers and IP headers and all that For stuff. Sure. And to me, that was like my foundational knowledge. That's where I was spending my time studying so right. I could go forward in my career. Uh, yep. I kind of wish I had read a lot of articles about electrical engineering back then, as, right. you know, kind of in between things. Um, but the the you know the study of TCP/IP and how it works, I think, is those fundamental skills. That if you're an audio engineer, you have to have those fundamental skills about how electricity works right. and physics, right? Right. Uh, and I think it's I, very similar. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, and because you had that experience of having to go and figure out how the underlying networking works and uh, dig into some topics that are pretty difficult for the average person, especially somebody who's who's building their career, it's almost like over time you start to erode this block that some people are born with, maybe some people learn to remove, but this block that says there's a difficult thing that I need to learn in order to move past this step or to make this Correct. thing happen. Are you going to dig in or are you going to move on? Right. right. And for me, having to dig into lots of things that I don't understand, uh, and, and this happens to me all the time now, um, in order to move forward in some way, whether you're, you found a, a technology or a, or a web app or a coding language or something in an environment that you want to exploit, but you, you haven't seen it before, 
having had to do that so many times, it's, it's almost like second nature to me. And, and I've heard similar things from other people as well. And well, I, and Jason, I, worry that, that I mean, that's, that's a quality of a hacker. I mean, as we defined sure, on the show, that's what it is right there. Right? I and totally, it, yeah. And you see very clear I examples and sometimes they're more clear, uh, than other times, but I was listening to the book about Stuxnet, right? And yep. they were talking about the researchers at one point were reverse engineering some of the code and basically said, there's some code in here that's written in a language that we have never seen before. And these are pretty seasoned reverse engineers. Right. And it's a very specific, like, uh, I think it was on the PLC uh, kind of side of things. And they're like, they couldn't find anyone to help them, right? Put out right. a call for help. And finally, they said, screw it. We're just going to go learn how to code in this language, right? right. Or learn right. as much as we can. We're going to go get the books. There was an interview that I did with someone who was presenting on hacking um, uh, speech uh, uh, interpretation devices, you know, the Alexis of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And when he was talking, I'm like, did you get a degree in like audiology or something? He's like, no, I just, I was interested in this subject. So I went up and I read about it and, you know, he held right. up this, you know, classic textbook that people in that field study, right? And he's like, I, right. I picked up this book on, you know, basically how the uh, human brain and, and ears and physiology interprets sound, and right. read it and did the best they could to understand it and apply it to my to my project. So it is very much a hacker uh, skill and kind of in the ethos that we, right. if we come across something, like we have many times on a pen test, right? Well, I was going to test that. Like, oh, I came across something I've never really seen before. Right. Let me go spend 12 hours researching that. And to that end, it can almost be a double-edged sword, right? Because it's kind sure. of in our DNA to go, when I come across something I don't understand, I'm going to go research <laughs> it, right? And we right. got to learn to right. manage our time. Jeff, well, yeah. you wanna, uh, hold on. Jeff wants to, to weigh in. Well, I, I just want to ask sort of a level-setting question here, just so we're all on the same page. In, in, in reference to building an InfoSec career, uh, and you're and we get through what you're describing as a process at you know when we're done what are we are we are we exclusively talking about uh security researchers pen testers red teamers or or are we being more inclusive to other related career fields that sort of fall under the umbrella of an infosec career yeah so i think that we've in terms of conversations that we've had on the show and then just my own personal opinion, I think that some of the things that we're talking about apply more broadly uh, beyond pen testers or security researchers, even to, to blue teamers and threat hunters and um, and even not, not security at all. I think that you can go find similar traits across lots of different industries, um, but it's, it's more about are you someone who wants to kind of move the needle in terms of where your understanding is and, and um, try to get that new information and incorporate that into your working set, whether it's trying to you know, re reverse engineer a new piece of malware that's, that's using a technique that you haven't seen before, um, or, you, or are you more looking to get to a point where you, know, you reach that homeostasis and you're like, okay, I, I know how to do this stuff. I've, I've kind of arrived and, and I'm going to ride this as long as I can. Um, I think that for the creativity and the inquisitiveness and kind of the, um, the impatience intellectually, I think I, I, I see that across uh, red team, blue team, developers, um, researchers. I, I see it everywhere, I think. Fair enough. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think many of us that work in information security, whether you know, you're know you doing malware reverse engineering or 
you know, you're a CISO or project manager or what have you, there's, For sure. uh, yeah. you know, a fundamental uh, understanding that will allow you to do your job better. Right. And certainly different disciplines within security have to know those fundamentals, maybe in a lot more detail than, than, than somebody right. else. Right. But I think, you know, grasping some of the basic concepts uh, is important to everyone that works in information security. And, let, you know, let's not leave aside that one of those fundamental skills, and in my opinion, is the ability to communicate at some level oh, to boy, yeah. many different audiences ab about, right. you know, security issues. And I think. I don't want to say security is unique, but certainly I believe in our roles as security professionals, there is a very high degree of likelihood that we will have to talk to some of the most technical people in our field, some of the sysadmins, network engineers, yes. other security, and also right. talk to um, you know someone in uh, accounting, finance, or one of our friends about like, hey, I just got a, a virus. Can you explain this to me? <laughs> right. Or be in a boardroom and go, what is the impact to the business on security? And again, I don't want to paint us as unique. Like there are other fields that require that level of communication right. and interaction. But certainly in security, many of us, if not all of us, have been in all of those different situations where you have to communicate with multiple different groups of people and know how of to course. tune the message. Yeah, and you think of like uh, healthcare and, and and doctors and um, and and like you said, lots of other industries where they have to do the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And security is becoming more and more apparent as one of those places where there's kind of internal speak and then and then how we speak to the rest of the world. And I'd actually love to see more of the security industry get to a point where we are focused on how our message is being received by the general public at large and less about you know, us screaming at each other about whether or not you should use an app or a text message or a phone mm -hmm. call for two-factor when, you know, the rest of the world sees that and they're like, you know, do I need it or do I not, right? And then um, we can come up with scenarios where why one more complex thing is better than the other, but in reality, we just need people to start using two-factor authentication, right? Um, and I think the concept that you're talking about, about being able to communicate not just to other people who deeply understand what we're talking about from a, uh, I don't know, like a grok level, it's, it's more how can we move the needle with uh, our companies and really society as a whole so that we're, we're doing things in a more secure way. Yeah, we were, we were actually just talking about this with, with uh, Dr. Doug on, on one of the webinars. Uh, today and one of the the critical missing pieces that has kind of always been disassociated from you know technical people is the ability to communicate well and how to integrate uh, not only communication into the offensive you know or, or even just the infosec community as part of curriculum and, and the next generation moving forward but also how to integrate like project management time management of course um, the ability to do that technical writing all the things that like people don't really tell you are kind of make or break in this industry the technical side of what we do is yeah very very technical and uh, hard to do and you know can be taught it's a right. lot of the soft skills that you get through, you know, decades of either experience or now we need to short circuit that and get people writing better, talking better and getting those soft skills early on. So we really have to figure out how to do that from a, from a red team standpoint now. Right. Right. And I think what you see a lot is whether or not somebody is interested in moving the needle and making a difference and making something happen or just doing the things that they want to do. 
Um, because if, if you want to make a difference and you want to build products or, you know, affect change from a policy perspective or user behavior and all that, you got to work with other people and you have to know how to communicate, um, not just so that you can get your point across, but how do we try to be more inclusive and how do we get the resources together that we need to actually make something happen, um, you know, rather than I'm going to stay in a basement and, and yell at people on the internet about, um, about heap exploitation or something. And uh, not that there's anything <clears> wrong with <throat> that. <throat> <great, but laughs> right, not that there's so, anything wrong with that stuff. But, um, curmudgeon, curmudgeon alert, curmudgeon alert. <laughs> right. I, uh, I dare but, say that some of this is, um, you know, not specific to our industry. Some of this is age and sure. maturity uh, of, of the population in, in general. And I would even say that and I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and <laughs> feel free to yell at me and, 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 and scream at me. I'm ready. But I, I think that the, some of our current technology platforms, social media platforms, has anybody stopped and counted how many social media platforms <laughs> they're monitoring right now during this self-isolation, by the way? Yeah. Um, I think they exacerbate the communication problem rather than solve the communication yes. problem. Yes. No, yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It, and it, a lot of it has to do with the speed, right? Um, if if you feel like there is an imperative to respond very very quickly, and and you went the social media route, I'll even take it the just working with other people and working remotely and email and chat and those kinds of things. Um, speed is almost never uh, a central component of delivering a good message, um, or having your true intentions be voiced and and uh, understood and really heard on the other side. Uh, and social media, like you mentioned, is, is is certainly not doing us any favors from that regard, because if we have filters left over, maybe we're not taking enough time for uh, information to pass through those filters before we deliver them. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Well, I, mean, I, almost- I, think, I think it started, so, sorry, I'll, I'll say this briefly and defer to Tyler. I think it started with whatever we decide was the first, you know, nonverbal social media type communication, whether that was texting, SMSing, or chat rooms, or IRC channels, or whatever. Right. I mean, as soon as we did something other than face-to-face interpersonal communication, society went downhill, in my opinion. Go ahead, Tyler. No, I mean, that, that's that's exactly right. We've, we've de-evolved from very articulate uh, writing from whether it be books or well-written manuscripts uh, down to 140 characters. Even you know prior to that, it was SMS. We had limited character space, and then we've stepped even further to that. We've now abbreviated half of our sentences, and we're using hieroglyphs, aka emojis. So we've <laughs> literally de-evolved from a a society down down the communication path. And I think this is a a real issue that. I'm not sure how we actually step back from it because even you know even technological savvy people that have to communicate well regularly still step back into bad habits and and have to interact on social media platforms. Yeah, I, I will say that the Egyptians and there's some really great quite a technologically advanced Sorry. society. <laughs> Don't. I'm going to send you an emoji man. right now. <laughs> Well, There's I some mean, really Facebook, great aspects of it. Um, Facebook came but, out with the one with the emojis yeah. hugging the the heart kind of thing. I mean, doesn't isn't that a game change? Never mind. I can't even say that it was a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> but then there are memes too, and I don't think anybody wants to get rid of those. Yes, and memes help us get through things like quarantine. Um, they do. Yeah, I want. I just want to go back, Jason. When you uh, interview people, um, 
because we don't often get into this with too many of our guests. Yeah. And I and I think, you know, like you said, some people think like, oh, like some of us just kind of fell into security and it was a wonderful journey. There's like any career bumps in the road, right? And, and to just oh, point, sure. this is unique to us, right? But what is unique to us is we may have had similar struggles uh, and different you know, ways to overcome them. And I don't want to discourage people from getting in the field if they do run into uh, certain roadblocks. So when you're interviewing people, what what are some of the things that they've mentioned as uh, you know significant challenges and or mistakes that they've made uh, along the way? And I, again, I wouldn't take any of those back, right? Because you know no. failure is a huge part of your success, believe it or not. Uh, yeah, and and getting to the point where you realize that is mm. a is a big part of the growth there. Uh, but I'll give a specific example that I don't think he'd he'd mind me sharing because he gave it to me on the on the podcast that sure. he assumes other that we assume other people listen to. <laughs> um, uh, Micah Hoffman, who you know you all know, who's a, and I in my opinion one of the the best guys we have working in the industry. Uh, does a lot of really great work in the OSINT field and is a sands instructor and, and does lots of other things. He shared who, who, that, are you, who are you kidding? You know, he's kind asshole. of at a tipping point in his career where, um, you know, we start to decide we want to push ourselves out there and start speaking at conferences and and doing some research and and presenting and being more public facing and right maybe before he started doing those things, imposter syndrome, which is a, a thing that's out there in the world now, but wasn't as talked about five, 10 years ago as it is now, um, you nearly got the best of him and he almost left the industry and changed careers entirely just because, you know, that fear, at, at least my understanding of it and, and something I can relate to is that, that fear of going out there and saying, I have something to share and you know, what are people going to think about me or say about me or how am I going to be viewed when I do those kinds of things can be a really, really difficult thing to do. Now, working in InfoSec doesn't mean you have to do those things. It does not mean that at all. Um, but you know, you can develop all the skills in the world that you want. Um, and I, what I've found is that lots of people still question their abilities and whether or not they are in a role that they deserve or whether or not they belong in the industry at all. Um, so that that was one of my favorite things that has been shared on the podcast so far, just because it was it was real. And I think there are so many people that go through that same kind of thing. And I can relate to it where it's it's like it nearly gets the best of you and you almost pack it up and and, and go a different route entirely for him. I'm, I'm glad he stuck around because he's an awesome guy. Um, but yeah, that was that was one of the main ones that, that I think kind of stuck with me. Jason, you, you uh, uncovered, uh, you know, some people's stories and in, in people in the community that maybe they're thinking it's a short time, short time for them in the community that they yeah. try to get into security and for a variety of reasons are discouraged. I think it's probably one of the most important topics uh, to cover in this segment, right, is to identify what those things are and work together, both us on the show and everyone listening, of course. Uh, to, to make sure mm -hmm. that that doesn't happen moving forward. What are yeah, some of those yeah. things? So one of them is being open about it. And I think you're starting to see this a lot more from people who are more established and, you know, five, 10, 20 years in and people who are just getting started where I, you're just being open. I'm, I'm struggling or I, I can't get this thing. I saw somebody on LinkedIn um, who shared, you know, they passed an exam, which is great. Lots of people share those kinds of things, but they also shared the results of the exam the first time they took it uh, four or five months ago where they failed and they failed pretty good. And I think that 
more people sharing those kinds of things and being open and honest about their struggles as they move through rather than uh, another unfortunate side effect of the, the social media culture that we've developed is curating your content and what you release into the world to make it seem like everything's great all the mm -hmm. time. And, and anytime you sit down, the, the thing that comes out the other side is, is, is golden ice cream and everything's all good. Um, I think, I think that being open and honest about those things is a, is a huge opportunity um, because the struggles and we can, we can list them. We can list them. Um, Getting your first job, you know, trying to make enough money, uh, trying to learn all the skills that you need as technology changes very quickly. Advocating for yourself, finding mentorship is is a is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. um, but it, that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to go out in the community and say, "Hey, I need help," um, especially for certain populations. That you know, I'm a, a white guy from New Hampshire, and I understand that um, there are certain things that society grants to me nearly by default that. Um, like I don't have to go out and look for a model of somebody look who looks like me and sounds like me that is at success doing the th kinds of things that I want to do. Um, but the more we can try to enable people as they're going through their journeys and and um, you know help them through some of the struggles that that we've all shared um, and try to create more opportunities for people of different backgrounds and different experiences, uh, then I think we can start to move the needle on that stuff a little bit and make it so you don't have to beat your head up against a wall by yourself in a basement and just stick with it long enough until you make it in the industry. That doesn't seem like a realistic um, bar to require people to get to. Right. So, and, but um, I mean, we're there, are, there, there are maybe. aspects of that that are, that are important. Um, I think that's true. You know, for one, uh, we've talked for a long time on this show since the very beginning. In fact, um, when it was IRC and not necessarily Twitter and you know right. AS, you know Discord and all these fancy things we had like back in the day we had <laughs> right. even Proper before maps. that we had you know BBSs uh, right. and you know then we had IRC and when you speak with the people who were running communities and projects uh, you know even way back in the day um, you know the more successful ones would tell you like basically like the rule that we carry forward in our chat channel today uh is like don't be a dick right, right. so and that means when someone's new uh, one example is that when someone's new and they're asking a question uh, don't discourage them don't poke fun at them don't be mean to them like try right. and help them now right the and, other side of that Paul, right I, is I, 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 go ahead there Paul, i i think Helping them is also encouraging them to be self-sufficient. Yes. Hey, help them in a specific try, way. Did you try to Google right. it first? Yes. What did you find there? Describe for me what you saw there. Right. What did you try that didn't work already? And that's in you know, and that's something that was instilled upon me that I, I don't want us to lose sight of either, right? Because you don't no. want to give people a free ride and just give them no. all the answers, right? And in, in the, you know, teachers, instructors, and mentors, the good ones know this, right? And have practiced this for a long time. When you know, I started my first job in the 90s uh, in technology, there was kind of this, uh, it wasn't even an unspoken rule. I mean, it was a flat-out rule. Like, Paul's the new guy. And they were like, look, they sat me down like, look, you're the new guy. You're going to have lots of questions. Here's the rule. You got to go try and figure it out on your own for at least 30 minutes before right. you come ask us a question. And totally. believe me, 
will know if you haven't spent that 30 <laughs> minutes right. doing that based on the questions that you're asking. So right. I, I do think, but that is doing it, in a, uh, to your point, Jason, in a very healthy and open way, right? right. They were very open with me. Here's how it works. You're I was part very of something. Open, right? I was very open with them going, yeah, I, okay, I, this time I only spent 10 minutes, right? Like, I'm going to be honest with you. Right, like this is what it was, and I deserved, uh, you know, a tongue lashing for that. Like I get it, but like I, you know, I, I kind of, I really want the answer, right? And there right. are other times where I'm like, <laughs> it can go in the other way too. Like, you know, I spent three hours, and uh, then they would be upset. Like you don't spend that much time right. before you come and ask a question. So right. you know, there's a definite balance, and I'm a really big proponent of seeing that carried forward in, in a constructive manner today because I don't want people to get discouraged. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important distinction to draw. And we've hired at Pulsar Security, we've hired a lot of people that have non-traditional backgrounds, which I, I get that we said no, that's uh, important doesn't, too. Yeah. doesn't exist really no, no, no. Uh, in terms of the traditional background. Um, but I think that they would they would kind of laugh at hearing me have to you know agree with you and make the distinction that I'm not talking about removing the intellectual struggle, right? Because that is... Yeah. A That's how you central learn. component right. of growth. It is required, right? So if, if you're going to get an easy answer, um, it's it's not going to stick and you're not going to know how to get the next answer. And I, I don't even necessarily mean to apply a level to that. Like at the beginning of, of the segment here, we were talking about uh, research and having to research and apply things uh, quickly to your job. I don't necessarily mean that that has to be advanced or basic. It, mm. it, the level of it doesn't necessarily matter at all. It's whether or not you can do those things and whether or not you are in an environment and part of a, a team or a community where you are enabled to go about that intellectual struggle in a healthy way or whether or not your lack of knowledge is used as a means of you know propelling you down while propping up others uh, which is something that you know happens in all all uh, walks of life across all industries but it's something that uh, i think we've seen in technology and security a good fair bit as well um so yeah, that struggle is so important, but how can we do it in a way that you don't have to overcome all of these social and communal and team-based negatives uh, in order to achieve that intellectual, um, I don't know, victory, I guess, that, that understanding. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it makes me wonder what the, the future is going to bring for people uh, coming into uh, computer security. And I think that you know, a lot of the it, the students are a result of the teacher, right? Mm. And, you know, did you have a teacher that was teaching you the, the right way? And I'm not talking about, like, the answers, right? Um, but mentoring you in, in the right way. The so th Right. So that when you come into the workplace, you don't have these expectations that, oh, well, if I don't know, someone's just going to give me the answer, right? Right. Like, right. Uh, no, and especially uh, in our field and many others, it takes a very analytical way of uh, thinking. It's very much paying attention to details and picking out that one you know, thing that you may search for hours for right. uh, before you find it and having a lot of perseverance and persistence uh, in this field and many others too. Not whether we're you know, unique snowflakes in the information security field, certainly. I think you're right? a unique snowflake. <laughs> right. But there are a lot of parallels. Like my wife is a, you know, an ultrasound uh, you know, sonographer. Uh, and I'm like, I'm like, what we do is pretty similar. And she's like, well, right. what do you mean? I'm like, well, you literally like take images of stuff and then you're helping the doctors point out where the problem is. I'm like, that's right. pretty similar. Look at like a packet capture 
and doing the pretty much the same exact thing, right? Right. The difference right. is someone's life isn't on the line most right. of the time in our field. Most of the time, in your right. field, most of the time, someone's life is on the line. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's a huge difference, right? Put it that analytical way of thinking, not giving people the answers, right, uh, is, is super important. So, you know, what's the path for people uh, in the future who can go to school, gain some knowledge, but maybe lack some of that, uh, you know, experience. How do we, how do we, you know, coach and mentor and, and keep that hacker spirit alive in the folks that are coming into the field? Not, not even just now, but you know, five, ten years in the future. Yeah, and and I'm glad that you put it that way because you you talked about we and the people who are here now and the people who will be in the industry then when those people are 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 starting to graduate and come in and get and start off with more security specific roles and not have to do things that are. Um, you know, at other uh, levels of technology. And I, I think it's so important that we have to be aware of it and we have to continue to foster that culture and just be the shepherds of it moving forward. Um, I think there's potentially some danger in some real siloing and, and specialization to the point where uh, people don't really understand what's going on on the other side of the hill or what, what somebody else on the team does. And, um, and you know, I'd hate to see that that journey of exactly like you're saying, struggling with something and, and, and not just getting the answer and not, um, you know, not having such a narrow niche of what you're looking at that you only have so few opportunities to achieve that, that intellectual breakthrough. Um, I think we've got to be aware of it. We've got to continue to shepherd it and we've got to do our best to, to build that kind of culture into our teams. It's easier at smaller organizations, right? Um, but even larger organizations where you have the right people in place and they have a stated goal and um, real effort behind fostering that kind of a culture, you start to see it grow in those places as well. So we have to keep keep that moving, you know, keep it alive as best as we can. Yeah, I think, I think having constructive uh, activities uh, to continue your learning you know, once you come out of school is super important. Right. Um, and I, I think some of the capture the flag kind of exercises are important. I think some, you know, there's certainly a ton of, you know, free online training right. uh, out there. Some of it's good. Some of it is absolutely atrocious. Uh, right. And some of it's really awesome. Right. And right. I think continuing, hi continuing to highlight uh, some of that. Uh, I'll give another shout out to Pentest Academy. Uh, and the uh, attack, attack and defense labs is that what he calls it? Attack and, attack and defense labs, right? Mm -hmm. Vivix just done an, an an amazing job, right? Uh, you know, with that whole lab side. And I've talked since the last time I mentioned him, I think it was last week on a webcast. Since then, I've talked to a few people about it, and I've asked them point out, I'm like, have you ever seen anything like like really that awesome for for people out there? And, and they're like, no, that's like it's really like a people love it right right so i've heard really good things i haven't used it yet though yeah and the nice part is you, you know you can start at any level right and right. i think that's some of the things that when i learn new things that i struggle with is i'm like of course i don't know exactly even what question to ask right now right <laughs> right and like how far back do i have to peel this onion before i get to like i i need to understand what's in, you know in the center first before right. i can come out and understand the mathematical formula for impedance right before i do that <laughs> i gotta understand the difference between ac and dc and then you know the, the whole thing right. um and the, oftentimes uh you know whether it's a you know some field like electrical engineering or audio engineering or it's security sometimes we're like well i don't even know what what question to ask and i well, think right. guiding people to 
this is the question you should be asking. Here are some great resources to go start learning the fundamentals, right? Because oftentimes we have to back up and go to, to, to step one. Yeah. Well, it was step one of my zero. favorite memories of, of working with someone um, was a couple of years ago at NetWars in DC. There was a, a company that sent a bunch of people and, and their technical guys were playing, but they had a marketer in the back of the room that was just watching. And you know, I walked up to him and started talking to him and, and asked him what he did and, and why he wasn't playing. And he's like, oh, I'm just a, a marketer. And I was like, oh, no, you got to come try because he was clearly interested. So then uh, we sat him down and we got you know his VM up and, and, we, and we got him running. And, and the way that it's set up is there are a few questions at the beginning that you know, it's really guided. You can take hints. So it really is built, like you're saying, for, for different skill levels. And uh, he started to get a few questions. And then I walked away. And then I came back. And then he had a few more questions on his own. And you could really see, like, uh, not to be you know overly sentimental or anything, but like he had like a spark sparkle in his eye. Like he was excited. There was some magic there. He was like, well, I didn't think I could do any of this stuff. And I'm, and I'm actually starting to do some of it and understand. And if you've ever taken someone who doesn't have any technical experience and, and showed them that the internet and web pages is just text in your browser and kind of the, the look on their face that they're going to get if there's somebody that it might take that little nugget and start to run with it. Um, that's, that's a major part of, you know, mentoring and wanting to teach people is seeing that in other people and enabling them. And yeah, um, yeah I, I think we, we need to continue uh, and even do a better job of, of teaching people in that way. Right. Because, yeah. you know, I, uh, I almost w like in my own research this week, looking into, you know, all the audio engineering stuff. I'm like, what I really need is like a really good SANS instructor. And instead of like an hour class on malware reverse engineering, like, can you do an hour class and, you know, get me up to speed on all these concepts right. in electrical right. engineering? That would be awesome, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I think that uh, we can't lose sight of the ability to teach people and enabling those who can teach really well. You know, like uh, many of us now, right, are teaching our kids in our, our homes uh, I don't want to call it homeschooling because I mean it's, it's like pseudo homeschooling, right? I'm not homeschooling, <laughs> right? Are so, you at home? Are you schooling? It's homeschooling. Yeah, we're trying to but, teach them some stuff, but I don't have curriculum. And yeah, so I don't we have to meet any standards or anything. And and Jason, you're, you're probably point. better off without curriculum. Any so. every state is different, right? And then there are many different forms of homeschooling, which is why it kind of loses the term, right? So my right. kids have. A curriculum. They have lots of online resources. Right. They have. They also have access to uh, to teachers uh, in virtual classrooms, and so I'm like laying fruit out on the table to teach my son, <laughs> like you know, uh, the commutative and associative properties of mathematics. Right. right? And, cool. and that's just one instance where I was like, "Wow, I think I did a pretty good job." And he got it. I'm like, yeah. "I think I did a pretty good job explaining to him." Now I'm not saying right. no. Like uh, again, kind of going back to you can just feed social media all positive things. That right. was an example, just one example. I'm like, I think I got it right. Now, the other 75% of the time, I'm like, holy crap, teaching is hard. And I have no yes. idea how to explain this to you. You right. know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. And the, the well. cynical side of me thinks that a lot of times in security and technology, content that gets released is sometimes more about the person who wrote it and is trying to teach it and their ability to show what they know mm. rather than how can I present this in such right. a way that really, really sticks, right. which is what I think separates some of the, the really great um, content providers and instructors that we have in the industry from, you know, people that are just putting stuff out there in the world. Jeff. I wanted to, uh, 
to say that you know, you're making me feel a little bit better about life choices I made early on. Uh, I, I will I will divulge at this point that I too was a business major in college. So was I. Uh, and um, I'm right there with you. I, I, I kind of went a different route than you did, but that, yeah, I digress. But uh, there came a point when I was working uh, in the DoD where I had an opportunity to go to grad school. I had the opportunity to do. Um, to work work 20 hours and go to school for 20 hours. Most mm-hmm. people went the grad school route, and I was just getting into uh, this field, shall we say, and I decided I'd, I would rather go back and get an undergraduate degree and le- learn computer science and learn all the fundamentals and the ba- basics right. uh, rather than doing all the advanced stuff. And, and I did, and here I am today for whatever that means. Mm-hmm. But I think I made I think I made the right decision based on what you're saying. Well, I I think that it is a path, right? I don't necessarily want to dispel people from from going a different route, but at least my personal opinion is that I come against things so often that I want to learn or do where there's like one piece of it, maybe 10% of it that is related to some thread that's related to some thread but that is related to some thread because I had to set up um you know, uh, um, an Active Directory environment in a, a test thing that I had to set up so I could support a customer, or or um, or some basic thing I had to do in in desktop support, or something I learned for basic um, networking in TCP/IP or 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 whatever. And that stuff comes up so often that I I sit there and wonder if I hadn't had the opportunity to really start with the basics and not you know, skip steps, where, where would I be? How would I, how would I figure this out? And maybe I wouldn't even have the ability to recognize when you have to take a step back and say, wow, I really have to get deep in the fundamentals here and get some basics because like Paul's saying, I don't even know how to construct my question. Um, so right. it, it exactly like, like your background, you know, getting, getting that fundamental baseline, um, enables you so much in the future to, you know, understand later technologies and identify trends over time and even new things, right? You start to realize, well, this is just a different framework for doing something that we used to do a different way. And I can kind of understand it that way. You develop those schemas, right? Um, Where if I, you know, just came out today and I had to go be um, an analyst or an incident responder or, or work in a sock or something like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how I would do it. No, I question. Go ahead, Lee. So I was thinking about, you know, we, we, we were all talking about the value of knowing the basics. And I remember, you know, when I was in college, I did take a computer science class, but it was through the math program. So I got hopeless amounts of math. And I did learn, you know, logic gates and, and, and writing microcode in the CPU. And I don't, I don't know that most people need to go that low. Right. When we were learning computer graphics, we actually learned the math before we went and did it on a computer. Lee, that's because right. you, you had to on computer systems back right. then. It's just <laughs> and I'm, so I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> yeah, how, sure. how basics is basics these days? How low do you have to go? I mean, I don't think anybody needs to learn ARCnet or even uh, right. Uh, right. LU6.2. When I took my first big networking class, the guy was saying, forget this CSMACD stuff. It'll never last. Token bus is what's going to kill be the killer technology. 
Right. Uh, Lee, you, you almost made me spit out my drink with that one. So oh, I'm going to say PCI right now, but in a different context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but so back I, then, to- Token Ring did have the advantage uh, oh, yeah. in, in speed. Oh, it was way better than Ethernet. No, well, uh, speed wise, I would argue speed wise. Local area network. Yeah, performance wise, yeah. not necessarily reliability because you had the young college intern uh, who would um, plug the wrong cable Paul. and break <coughs> it, <Paul>. <coughs> me and break <coughs> the ring. <laughs> None of the rest of us ever did that. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I, I was I was cleaning out. Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, the How other day. Oh, sorry. Go and uh, sorry. Uh, and uh, actually, throughout some of my uh, networking course stuff from college, um, in the early '90s, and uh, one of the articles that we were handed out, photocopied, was an article about FDDI. Oh, like fitty, fitty. Fitty. That Token was before ring. it was sent. Fitty sent. That's that's <laughs> almost as good as Lincoln Logs if you're following the Discord channel. <laughs> Hello, boys and girls. Hey, it's Mr. Joff. Joff. Hey, Joff, How's you're just in time. Going? Hey, we're hey. talking about how to get your start in information security, uh, and we're here with uh, Jason Nicola. Uh, do you have any questions for Jason? Wow. Talk about being put on the spot. Uh, <laughs> I have no, a question. I, if, I, you, if you want to think a minute, Jeff. Um, yeah, why don't you, you go ahead, Jeff? You shoot first. I did. I put I put Joff on the spot. You did. Uh, I, I'm stalling on behalf of Joff right now, so don't think. Don't say Do I ever, never did anything for you, Jeff. So oh, uh, mm-hmm. at the very beginning, you were introduced as being someone that that at your company does both pen testing and red teaming. So I thought it'd be a great question oh, to ask. God, you. we don't have difference? time for that, Jeff. <laughs> 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 Ain't nobody got time for that. Oh, he should know. <laughs> if, if he does both, he should know the answer. And be, so he should so be I'll used let, to fielding that question. You're 100 percent right. I am, and uh, I'll explain it the way we explain it to customers. Um, well, actually, no, I won't. I'll explain it the way that I don't explain it to customers. The the way that let I don't explain. explain no, it to, no. Let me sum up. Yeah, the way that I don't explain it to customers is uh, if you want me to do a pen test for you, uh, then you probably don't actually want me to do any exploitation. That unfortunately is the the, the most common interpretation of it that I see, uh, where they yep. really want a vulnerability assessment. But let's shed those ones and just talk about the ones that actually want uh, penetration testing. I look at that as more like isolated. There's something that you want us to poke into for the sake of trying to exploit something. And there is more value of it beyond that. What uh, harm can you cause in an environment by, um, you know, exploiting some condition or uh, pivoting from one area of the network to the other or accessing something? Um, so I think that's important to understand. But the red teaming side of it, where I see the real distinction, is uh, the team. The word team there necessitates a blue team, and that's that's the way that I look at it. Is if you want us to do a red team engagement, we really are looking for what are your processes, what's your detection, what's your response, what are you doing on the other side, and that's more what we're testing rather than saying, does this technical system have something that we can exploit um, and and try to achieve some outcome rather than we're testing you and your people and and your processes and your ability to respond to what we're doing. That's the way that I look at it, anyway. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting uh, perspective in terms of what the differences are. Again, we've done like whole hour long segments right. where <laughs> we talk about you know the, the difference between a penetration test, a red team, a purple team, right. uh, and a, a full on uh, attack simulation, uh, right. adversary simulation, I should say. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I, I guess you could throw a tax simulation in there too. You could. Can I ask my Can I ask my question now? Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is this, and Tyler be a and good I, one. It is a good one. Tyler and I were talking about this earlier. Do you think that it is possible to be a good security professional, in particular, a good red teamer, if you don't have any prior operational experience? Mm. Is it possible? Um, yes, I think it's it's definitely possible um, because I think that there are lots of people who have the b ability to fill in blanks along the way, but it requires some support. Like if you're just, um, you know, you're existing in a vacuum and, and they pop a laptop in there and they say, you know, fill in all the blanks yourself, that's going to be pretty difficult. But if you're at a decent organization with some people who have some real experience um, and they can help fill in some of the blanks for you, um, I personally have met some people that I think are going to go and become operational and they're going to go do things on their on their own time or, or carve out portions of their day or whatever they have to do to fill in a lot of those blanks that I think that you get from um, years and decades in the trenches of, of being operational, like you're saying. Um, it's harder. Uh, I think it's it's easier to have some of that experience ahead of time, which goes a lot into some of sounds our like earlier conversations about sounds the like, basics. Sounds like, Jason, you could, you could be that pen tester that doesn't have operational experience, provided you had other people on your team that totally. did have that operational experience to ask questions. Right. Yeah, it, well, and eventually you get there, yeah, but yeah. it's 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 hard to get there without the support of people that right. that do have that knowledge or at least the ability to point you in the right direction. And, and I, I would argue there's different levels of operational experience, right? Like I can gain operational experience trying to keep my home network running, right? But right. you know, I, doing that in the enterprise when you've got tens of thousands of of endpoints. Right. And you know, uh, you no, know, five thousand network drops, and in right. the whole thing, uh, uh, the, even still, that's different, right? Right. Okay. Can you so get enough of, of it? Like, I guess. So Paul, Paul did say the word enterprise, uh, and so that requires everybody to drink right now. So. <laughs> oh, sweet. We're drinking <laughs> well, I was, was going right to <laughs> restate the question, given that you know the enterprise is changing so much today. You know, a what is operations looking like today and in the near future? And, and is it still something that's going to be not necessarily a prerequisite but preferred path to getting into security or a red teaming field? Or yep. given the changing you know, uh, field of operations and what operations is, how do we make sure that people that are coming up get the right kind of experience that they need similar to generations in the past that came up through operations? Right. heavily loaded heavily loaded <laughs> oh for sure and i think a lot of people will disagree with my answer and i'm very interested to hear what other people think but i think a lot of it is the ability to script and um, how you can manage and deploy cloud resources and think about scale so in some ways i think that it is easier uh to become operational today and 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 you know in the in the next phase of things than it was uh in the past because a lot of that stuff um is is more scripting and, and your ability to deploy solutions no um, see jason that, I, that so i'll disagree i think that sure. you could in the cloud set up in a bunch of enterprise air quotes systems right and script mm -hmm. and manage those all day long until you've done that for a real business that has multiple teams that have to work together and you have to put in three change requests and you have to deal with tickets from the help desk and all of the operational and interpersonal things that happen in an enterprise, 
that's a, a completely different skill set. Like I think the technical aspect versus the experience working. Yep. Because as pen testers that we were the ones that we were on the help desk and we were on the operations team and now we're doing a pen test. We understand a lot of those little nuances that quite frankly, it's kind of unfair that we take advantage of them today to be quite honest with you, right? It really is. Mm -hmm. It really is. Hey, I, can I tell a quick story? Please? Yeah, go ahead. Joff, sure. tell a story and then we're going to do five questions with Jason. So really, really funny story. I'm going to go back to the days when I was a faculty consultant and and student consultant helping out uh, people at the university, okay? Um, I had a lovely young lady come to see me, and that was my favorite part of the job, by the way. <laughs> and um, she said, my floppy disk is not working. And this was in the days of five and a quarters, okay? We're not talking three and a half inch floppy disk. All right? I said, why not? She goes, well, just l hang on a second. Let me get it out of my purse. And she reaches into her purse and she pulls out a floppy disk. And I look at it and it's and it's and it's like this, all right? It's curled over like this, but it had a beautifully typed label on it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> let me guess, Jeff. When she handed it to you, she was touching a little part that looked like a giant pill instead of <laughs> the middle and handing it to you, right? <laughs> but I wow. gotta tell you, man, the label was pristine. I'm like. Okay, some of you don't remember, there used to be this thing called a typewriter. And she had rolled that thing oh. into the typewriter oh, and it typed up the label. <laughs> yep. Wow. Especially the 8-inch floppies. They were easy to roll into a typewriter. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we were, again, that same, that same box, FIDI instructions. Uh, we found a bunch of save icons in the same box. That's right. Sweet. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Nice. All right, let's do the five questions. All righty, Jason, are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Uh, I think so. Three words to describe yourself. Um, that's one. Oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, I, the first one would probably be um. um <laughs> well, that's I, way I'd, more than three words. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say head above water. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Oh. Uh, I would say ice, but I know that that's very, very cliche. So I'll say uh, nanobots. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Figuring it out. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first <laughs> or second? Um, first, just because of what I think going first says about your personality. Choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, fictional, Ooh. or otherwise. Um, oh, yeah, I missed it. <laughs> Nick Nick Offerman, I think he'd be a great dad. And then, oh, what's the woman's name from the West Wing that plays uh, oh, the press secretary? Her. What's her name? She'd be a great mom. She's a great actress. I can't remember her name at the moment, though. You know Allison Janey? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 not mom. Allison Janey. It's not Allison It's That uh, is Allison, yeah. Yeah, she'd be great. Yeah, those are my Google two. Nick Offerman and Allison Janey. We're all, we're all Googling like crazy right now. Google it's not it. Allison Go to the Googles. It's definitely Allison. Anyway, go, it's, go, it's pronounced Go Ogle. <laughs> you nailed that. Go Ogle. Go Ogle. That's right. It's it's called Go Ogle. <laughs> yeah. And oh, the winner is there? Joff. You could write like an entire Python application from memory without using the internet, but we asked you to Google. Since when? <laughs> since when do we allow people to go to the Go Ogle? The That's right. Come on. It's anyway. not a comprehensive list, man. It's the the, the press secretary from West Wing. Jason, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Uh, now, Jason, what is, where can people find your podcast? 
So we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can go to giac.org slash podcasts uh, and sign up that way too. That's the easy giac.org slash podcast. Jason, thank you very much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Thank you all. I appreciate it. With that, we'll take a short break. Come back. Sven from NetSparker talking about HTTP security headers. Stay tuned. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to graphwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. FlexTrack is the platform that guides the healthy collaboration of red and blue teams to get the daily security work done. Red teams can create reports in half the time and track risk to resolution with the blue team. Blue teams can centralize remediation efforts across all scans, assessments, and audits through simple visualizations of risk, scanner, and ticketing integrations. Enhanced analytics allow you to effectively communicate risk in real time. FlexTrack is perfect for remote collaboration across all teams. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash FlexTrack to claim your free month today. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Uh, quick announcement. Join the Security Weekly mailing list and receive your invite to our community Discord server by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. No stranger to the show, Sven Morgenroth, is a security researcher at NetSparker. He likes to exploit vulnerabilities in creative ways and has hacked his smart TV without even leaving his bed. Uh, Sven has done lots of awesome research at NetSparker and uh, shared it several times on the show and on the NetSparker blog. You can learn more about NetSparker, an awesome web application vulnerability scanner, at securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Sven, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Yes, nice to have you on, Sven. And I'm uh, super uh, nerdy, so therefore I am super excited about our topic about HTTP security headers. Now, I do want to kind of level set for ourselves and our audience, right, about kind of like the purpose and usage of HTTP headers. The The way that I, I think can best articulate it are that the HTTP headers are... Uh, will allow the client and the server to exchange information about how they might communicate. Does that did I capture that? Yeah. Um, so you know that there are very different kinds of web applications and they need different uh, levels of protection and different settings to um, get everything uh, as secure as possible. Right. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting. So like if you look at the, is it server type? where it'll say it's Apache version, blah, 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 right? That's a header inside of HTTP. Now, I always thought of it from a security perspective, like, oh, I just want to turn that off, right? But it actually has a purpose where the client can request that from the server, and the server can say, hey, I'm Apache or, or I'm IIS, and the client might do different things based on that response, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's uh, a way to exchange communic- uh, to exchange data between the server and uh, the client without actually having the user um, see them and right. uh, have to worry about them. It's all right. um, on the server side, uh, what is sent to the client and vice versa. Um, cool. 
so you um as i said you, you need li uh, different levels of protections and that's why not all uh, security features are activated by default and have the same settings uh, for example you might uh, think of a website that allows you to uh, test javascript code online usually in an application um, that you use for banking or something like that you don't want to um, have the user do that and maybe activate an XSS filter there and um, that would break the functionality of the other side. Mm. So these headers are actually very useful to have your um, to have your security settings set for the purpose you want to um, fulfill with your, with your uh, website. <clears throat> so there are and are these these are there's older and newer, headers inside of the the HTTP protocol that can help the client and the server basically negotiate uh, better security settings, correct? Yeah, exactly. Um, there are some headers that were deprecated. Um, we will uh, talk about them as well and uh, others that are quite new. And it's um, very important to stay up to date to see what uh, options there are and how to improve your security. Outstanding. Um, so if you want, I can share my screen with you and show you a presentation I've prepared. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Uh, I hope you can see it. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, uh, I've, I've called it HTTP security headers, an easy way to harden your web application. And um, what we just did was uh, basically explaining what HTTP security headers are and uh, how they are used. Um, the security headers are a certain uh, subset of the HTTP headers, actually, that enhance your application security. And if an application wishes to enable a certain opt-in security feature in the user's browser, uh, then it can do so by setting the respective security header. And some of these headers are like an on switch. You just enable them. Um, you enable a certain feature of them and don't pass any options, like the X content uh, type options header that only has a single um, valid value, which is no sniff. And there are some others that allow you to pass parameters as well. And the most um, important one, I guess, is the content security policy that is a very powerful header that we can uh, also talk about. And all of them help you, uh, help you to secure application in certain scenarios um, because not, uh, not every security feature is meant for every application. Uh, we can start with this, uh, with uh, SSL-related one, because a lot of people, when they think about, uh, think about securing their applications, they uh, think about uh, TLS or SSL. And uh, the header looks like this. It has uh, certain options. And it tells the browser that the site should exclusively be accessed over HTTPS for a specified amount of time. You can see it in the um, MaxH header. Mm -hmm. And browsers will be instructed to never load the site over HTTP from that point on, hmm. on any uh, consecutive visit, at least until the max H header expires. Or the and user, or the user dumps the cache in their browser. 
Yeah, yeah um, that, so. that works as well, I think, mm. for HSTS, uh, so mm -hmm. for strict uh, HTTP strict tolerance port security. It's a little bit more difficult to get rid of it. I think when you uh, just clear your cache, it doesn't uh, clear that setting. You have to go somewhere in the... Mm. Uh, deep into the Chrome settings or uh, Firefox mm. settings or whatever you use to uh, to disable it. Mm. Uh, however, there's a problem with this header and it's the TOFU problem, uh, trust on first use. And the first visit uh, to a site is always at risk of man in the middle over the HTTP um, of an HTTP connection because this header wasn't seen yet by your browser if you haven't visited the uh, visited the website yet and therefore uh, on your first visit you are still vulnerable and your browser would still load the page over HTTP. Um, however, the <coughs> HTTP preload list tabs, uh, this is a list that is basically hard-coded in your browser. Um, it changes when you, when you uh, install a new version of Chrome, for example, it will also um, update this list internally and it is a list of certain URLs where HSTS should be enabled by default, and then it will also use this uh, security feature on the first visit. You have to manually add your website to it and hmm. have to um, uh, have to meet some requirements to get it included there. That's so. That's interesting. So if I'm able to do a man-in-the-middle attack, I can basically send an HTTP uh, response and say like never use strict transport security. And then from that point on, that's what gets stuck in the browser. Um, yes, kind of. I think you could still use uh, transport security, but you could uh, do certain other uh, things like um, setting some cookies or, um, yeah, or other stuff like uh, somehow um, setting a very long cache time mm -hmm. and have some script, uh, some custom script there that would also be executed in the, um, would be executed later maybe. Uh, so, so it's uh, very, um, th there are very different ways to exploit it. Cool. Um, then there's another header and I said there were some headers that were deprecated. Um, this is one of them. It's XXSS protection. And it's mostly use, uh, useless nowadays because, as a matter of fact, almost no browser has any XSS filter these days. Um, it allowed you to specify whether you wanted to disable the XSS filter, or you could also specify the protection mode that allowed you to um, either disable only the uh, script that the browser thought you would um, try to inject as an attacker or uh, it would block the whole page. The issue with that was that it led to side channel attacks um, or it allowed you to selectively disable any inline or external JavaScript code, which is a bad thing. And uh, you had the uh, you could disable it, which meant no protection. Uh, that would actually be the safest choice in most cases. Or you could um, you could set it to uh, just XXSS protection one, which was the default for a long time. And it allowed you still to selectively disable any scripts on the website, which is also not very good uh, in a security um, 
if you think about security, for example, frame busters or something like that. And if you set it to mode block, you uh, could uh, activate certain side channel attacks that may have allowed you to brute force something like um, something like JavaScript values in a script block or um, maybe CSRF uh, tokens. Mm -hmm. And so you um, couldn't really make it secure if you have XSS protection enabled, so they removed it. And another thing is that it was frequently bypassed anyway. So it didn't really make sense for most browser vendors to keep it in there. So what what it makes me wonder, Sven, what, what are browsers doing today to help with uh, cross-site scripting attacks and prevent them? They don't do any filtering anymore um what they do is certain other stuff like enabling you to um make your own policy what scripts are allowed to be executed on mm -hmm. the page that requires a little bit of manual work and configuration but overall it works better than any xss filter that they had implemented before right i see so they've um, left it up to to the developers of the site to basically whitelist their JavaScript code in libraries and includes uh, rather than try and implement this, this protection mechanism uh, at a global scale. Yes, they did exactly that. And I think um, this is the way to go because XSS, uh, XSS protection was uh, giving you kind of a false sense of security mm -hmm. of the XSS filters in general. And um, here you have to actually think about what your website needs to include um, externally or what is allowed to be executed. And it allows you to make your site more secure than if you rely on the filter. Yeah. And I, I also, in my assessment, Sven, it, it got so complex and there became so many different ways to interact with the DOM and execute scripts that probably also made this deprecated, right? Just the, the new way in which we implement websites. Again, there's just so many opportunities to execute scripts somewhere that you almost have to leave it to the developers. Yeah, there were even instances where there were bypasses that not even the um, people that that, that uh, developed the browsers were thinking about. Um, so I think one example was that there were kind of, was kind of a new way how to write HTML entities, if I remember that correctly, I might be wrong there. And um, they only checked for the old way to do it, and uh, that uh, played a part in uh, bypassing the filter. So even for them, it kind of got too complex. Right. And there were also some programming bugs in there. I think you uh, could pass six or seven null bytes before the, your payload mm -hmm. and it was just executed or you left the uh, closing script tag open mm -hmm. and and it would also execute JavaScript. So it, it was really a mess. And um, at least uh, speaking for Chrome, I th I'm not sure how it was for Edge or Internet Explorer, but I believe it was far worse there just from just judging from the um, from my experience with it. Mm. So um, then there's also cache control, and it's not really seen as a security uh, header by most people. 
um, it's mostly thought as a performance uh, improvement header where you can instruct the browser or an intermediate cache to store responses in a certain uh, of uh, when certain conditions are met. And um, th that's true, but it also allows you to control which resources are cached in a security. Um, yeah, when it comes to security, that is an important thing because there may be, uh, for example, credit card details on the page that, that shouldn't actually mm -hmm. be there. <laughs> like, so, like uh, Sven, in, yeah. in this case, the server is telling, instructing the client what it should cache and what it should not, correct? Exactly. Um, the pr private caches are basically a browser and shared caches are like an intermediate cache, mm -hmm. for example, between the um, server and your client. And then, Sven, and when, when you go into debugging mode in the very, you know, Chrome or Firefox and you click disable cache, does it ignore this header? I think it does, yes. Okay. It should ignore this header and... Um, doesn't uh, store anything, but you can't instruct an intermediate cache, for example, to ignore it. Mm. Um, except you do th uh, something like uh, adding an, um, an uh, parameter or something uh, that isn't in another um, response you want to check or you, you want to disable the cache for, because those are um, so-called cache keys and mm -hmm. the uh, URL is one of them and a cache doesn't look at the whole uh, request to decide whether it should cache or not, but it looks at certain indicators like, um, as I said, the URL or the host um, header or uh, yeah, uh, things like that. And um, if, if you really want to make sure that this um, that a cache is disabled when you test something, you should just add a random parameter to it and uh, try it again, if that works with what you want to test. Mm. Um, but but for that, you ca uh, but, but with cache control, you can instruct your intermediate caches or your client to not cache something, for example, an address or basically anything that should not be stored um, on any cache. And um, this is uh, good for security and also for privacy. And clear site data is also a header that is um, good for both. It allows you to clear the browsing data like uh, cookies, storage, and cache. It's also relatively new. And um, you would usually do that if you want to log out a user or delete client site data. And on modern browsers, the directives cache cookie storage are working. There was another one, um, what I'm not sure right now what it did, but uh, they removed it. If you want to uh, enable all of the, or if you want to delete any of the options, you can also use a wildcard like you can see in the, uh, in the presentation, in the header. And there's CSP, Content Security Policy, that was what we were talking about before. It is uh, the, or at least one of the most powerful client-side security headers. Um, it allows you to define which resources are allowed to be loaded. Um, as I said, it's an effective mitigation strategy against XSS. 
and it replaced uh, the XSS protection header and the XSS filters, basically. But uh, as I said, a proper implementation might be hard, especially in existing applications. And you really want to make sure that you check your uh, implementation of the setter to make sure that you don't accidentally make any mistakes in, um, in implementing these headers because it's uh, very, very hard to get uh, to get right to begin with. Yeah, I think you talked about this in a previous segment, right? And developers tended to relax the restrictions to make their own code work, but that basically wipes out any protections that you might have against cross-site scripting. Yes, the, that is uh, true. Developers uh, often, at least I often saw it, that they just made a very ineffective um, content secure, uh, security policy that basically allowed anything. But uh, I guess they uh, can make a check behind the uh, implemented security policy uh, requirement and then go on with the, um, with the uh, application and, and uh, develop other features without um, thinking too much about whether the policy is secure or not. Right. And, and I think the danger with that is what you're alluding to is that as a developer, I'm writing a library that controls the loading of other libraries. But if there's a bug in my library that's controlling which libraries can be loaded, that can wipe out any security controls. I've seen one of these libraries, right? And it, it was like five years old and it hadn't been updated and they moved on to a new version. But the implementers of this particular site were using the five-year-old version. And I'm like, this the web security problem is just gets so complex in these in these instances because really I think what it comes down to, Sven, is so much of the control is left to the developers, right, in their decisions. Yes, exactly. The, I, I uh, totally agree on that one. Um, another interesting header is extreme options. Um, you often uh, see it as a kind of uh, inside joke because they're usually in the bug bounty program. That is the first thing people report um, that X frame options is missing. Um, but it's actually a very useful header in uh, certain circumstances. You don't need it uh, to be enabled everywhere, but um, it makes sense in certain scenarios. And it allows you to prevent other websites from loading your page in an iframe, which is uh, a thing that some website developers find useful, um, not only in a security context, but in general, if they don't want their page be implemented anywhere. Um, now, Sven, when, when, you say, yeah. when you say page, is that is that limited to just like an HTML document or does it prevent me from loading images and or uh, JavaScript from another website? Um, it doesn't uh, prevent you from loading images or JavaScript um, if it's not an iframe and I think maybe also in an, in an object or something like that. Mm. But um, it's mostly aimed to uh, prevent UI redressing attacks. And I will um, I will give you a demo of what such an attack may look like if mm. we've got something to awesome. visually um, get across what uh, the danger of not, impl uh, not implementing this header might be. 
Um, there's a, con a common misconception, uh, though. Uh, excuse me. Uh, this does only prevent users from embedding your uh, page. It does not um, mm. prevent them from making a request to the server. So if you um, thought that these might be blocked and you can secure your application uh, in a way that CSF attacks doesn't work anymore, um, that is not the case. Mm -hmm. So um, the request is made anyway. Um, because the header has to retrieve somehow, but only um, it won't be shown. Mm. Uh, another workaround for an attacker, depending on what you want to do, um, is using window.open, for example, which opens a new tab. And this is a great way to exploit something like, uh, like cross-site uh, history manipulation or vulnerabilities like that that usually use an iframe for exploitation. But um, the only real um, real uh, goal is to to somehow interact with the iframe, for example, by sending a post message or by um, um, or, or by by redirecting it somewhere. This still works if you use window.open. Um, what it really is effective against is click checking. Mm. And what also is interesting is that you don't really need the X-Frame option setter. You can also achieve the same goal by using a CSP directive. So I can show you really quick what such a click-checking attack, what they are trying to protect against may look like. You can see here this black box, uh, or the white box with the black uh, border around it. And this is an iframe you can load as a, an external site on it. And what we um, just did here was loading an, a page of an administrator, for example, that has a button that allows you to delete a user. And if you click it, uh, you get the confirmation that the user is deleted. So what you can do now as an attacker is, um, or, or what you want to do as an attacker maybe, is sending uh, this whole page here to the administrator and somehow trick him into clicking it. But just having this button and maybe uh, some some U, uh, UI around it that I, I couldn't really mm -hmm. show you due to lack of um, proper web design skills. Um, th this would be a little bit obvious for a user and he wouldn't click the delete user button. But what you could do is um, make an overlay over this website and print it on your own page because you uh, can basically mm. um, you um, create any any uh, element on this page and overlay the iframe with it. And um, what really happens here is that the iframe is still there, but you um, trick the user into clicking the button here, which says "Win twenty-five dollars." And if they click it, they will still get their user deleted um, notification because um, because what actually happened is that the button on the other page was clicked. So you're basically using JavaScript to trigger delete user, except the user is saying win twenty five dollars. Um, it's it's more like a CSS trick because this page hmm. here can't be accessed with JavaScript as it's across. Um, yeah, right. It's cross, cross origin. origin. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, what you what you what 
the user can still click it. So this is not affected by, by cross-origin because the mouse can just click anything in the diaphragm and it will be executed or it will uh, behave like it's a completely different page. But um, you trick somehow trick the user into clicking it anyway by creating an overlay and then do, uh, putting that over the iframe. And, and, and that, overlay, that overlay, Sven, is uh, a CSS overlay, basically? Yeah, it's just, uh, I can maybe show it to you. It's just basically an, uh, a diff with, uh, with a certain CSS mm -hmm. uh, property set. Um, it's point events none, which means that if you click it, it will not re register the click on the top element, uh, but it will register the click anyway on the um, oh. uh, on the on the iframe. I didn't know you could do that in CSS. That's really interesting. Um, <laughs> what you can now do um, uh, w th this is very unfortunate because it would basically allow. Uh, you wouldn't be safe clicking anything on the internet anymore that uh, couldn't be somehow prevented. Mm. And you can, however, uh, load the site, but do it with the X-Frame Options header set. And what you see here is this uh, set looking uh, page icon. And that means that the uh, that it was actually blocked, I think. Right. That is in English, yes. Um, yeah, the, so the, it, what, what does the server send back as a response when it has the X-Frame option sent? Is it a, an HTTP code or? Um, it just sends this header. Uh, let me see what it is. Uh, here it is, X-Frame uh, options header. And um, if you see the response, and you can't read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can see it. Can you? No, you can't. Um, so the response is basically thrown away, and you uh, the the browser doesn't uh, really take it. Uh, gotcha. Does anything with it anymore? The br the browser reads the HTTP header and goes, "Yeah, no, I'm not rendering that." Basically. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, that's uh, what the the XFrame options header uh, can do for you. It's a very uh, useful security feature that is often underestimated, but it is required on certain pages. That's awesome. Then we can continue with another TLS-related uh, security header, which is called public key pins. And it allowed you to um, store a hash of your public key and some metadata on your user's browser. Um, it's now deprecated in favor of another header I will uh, show you in a minute. And during each connection, the hash would be compared to the data supplied by the web server. Um, if it didn't match, the connection would be dropped and an error would be shown. And it was prone to misconfigurations, which could disable your website for this time specified in the MaxH header. And as you see here, if you have such a large header and... Uh, Is that in seconds? It might be, I'm not sure, it might be minutes, seconds. Um, gotcha. I, I'm not sure about that. You can maybe read that in the specification. But um, if you set a very long time, um, this would be very um, fatal if the the hash you would put in here was not, um, was not correct, if there was any error in there, or if... Um, if you somehow um, yeah, lost access to your, your um, initial uh, key. 
and where was uh, it, on the server side. Where was it desupported or uh, deprecated? Is it the browser's no longer supported, or has it been taken out of the language spec, or what? Where did it go away? Yes, the browsers don't uh, support it anymore, just because it was very difficult to implement correctly for some users, and because if you really screw it up badly, and you have, for example, uh, visitors that um, constantly use your website and um, are there very often, it might happen that they are just there when you, for example, test something in the live environment or something goes wrong, and then they can't access the website for the time specified in here. They will be, there will literally be no way to um, access the site except if they manually delete um, the the entry in their browsers, which was also I think hidden somewhere in the in the settings menu on maybe in some about page or something like that. So wait, can and we can we exercise this vulnerability so that we can lock everyone else out of a site so that we can get a Schmookon ticket? Not that I'm <laughs> not that I'm advocating for that. I'm just saying, theoretically speaking. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that if, if you um, were to control a header, that would be sent back to the application, and you mm -hmm. could somehow um, make your make a public key pin that is not correct. Yep. Um, then I think you might have been uh, able to just uh, DOS the website, and other users couldn't access, uh, access it anymore when they were visiting the page in the time window where you were able to do that, or if you um, just send a, comp a, a prepared link to them where this would be triggered. So you, you could log them out of the site, basically. Right. I'm not sure if they um, implemented a security measure where it would um, also check the public key pin if it is the correct pin, that, uh, if it's the correct hash for the public key that was used to access the site where the header was set back. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not sure they implemented that, but it uh, somehow sounded like they didn't, and it would be very prone to... Uh, these mistakes where you could, where your users couldn't access your site and you couldn't do anything about it. Hmm. So what they deprecated it in favor of was um, expect CT or certificate transparency logs in general. Um, now how that works is new certificates must be submitted to a certificate transparency logs, and each time your browser visits a website, it would check if the certificate that was sent um, was also in such a log. And if that was not the case, then the connection would be um, would be dropped, or so something would happen that the users can't access the website. And this uh, allow you to monitor these logs for your domain and see if there's any new certificate issued for your website that you didn't really issue. Hmm. And th there is an issue though because auto certificates may not have been submitted to a CT log but are still valid. I think that uh, became only a, a requirement in 2018, and they are valid for like um, on the, the maximum amount of this or the longest period where they are valid is 39 months, something like that. And that means in 2021, um, every header uh, or every certificate must be in such a certificate log if you want to. Um, not have an error shown. 
and um, to make sure that no such older certificates exist for your website and can be used to impersonate you um, because back then there was no way to verify um, which which um, certificates are out there that may be um, that may be acquired uh, fraudulently and then you can use the expect ct header because now it expects that any certificate um, for your website that is sent back to the user must be in a certificate log even though or even if um, they were issued before 2018. Interesting. And if a website suddenly um, uses a, cert a certificate uh, that is not in such a log, it will not um, render the website. Um, Yes, then there's also the feature, uh, feature policy header. And it allows you to restrict certain browser features on your website and any child frames that are on your website. And this includes features that allow you to grant access to your site's content, such as setting document domain, which is a very, um, yeah, one of the oldest tricks, or not really tricks, but features to uh, circumvent the same origin policy on your own website. And you could uh, set this uh, document.domain um, to the main domain, and then um, subdomains could uh, communicate with the uh, main domain without worrying about same origin, because they would uh, basically be cross-origin if they have a different subdomain. Yeah, oh, could, so th um, that's the attack where I can compromise a subdomain right, through some other means uh, and, and basically get it to execute code as if it were the main domain, correct? Yes, exactly like that. Gotcha. Um, this feature also allows you to restrict access to um, features that use device sensors like gyroscope, camera, microphone. Um, it might be possible that more features are added in the future because it, it is very um, modular. You can just, uh, as you see here, um, say which feature you want to um, restrict. And then here you can uh, put the restriction in place, for example, that uh, it should never be um, allowed to use the microphone. I think that might be a good idea if you have certain areas on your website where it is okay to use the microphone, for example, some um, yeah, some some feature where you can search something with your voice, um, but you don't want it to have it, uh, to. Uh, you don't want to enable this feature on every other and any other part of your website, mm -hmm. where um, custom scripting is allowed, or where you aren't sure if, or if you want to make sure that there's no access as vulnerability, that would allow um, any attacker to uh, abuse the fact that a user trusted your website with. Um, with, the mic with enabling the microphone mm -hmm. and uh, that they can suddenly snoop on you. So it's uh, it's very uh, good to have this set when you have a certain feature that might be problematic and um, you, you can just set it anywhere except where you want to uh, except where you want to use the feature actually. And you you would typically set that on a, a subdomain, right? Like talk.mydomain.com can have the feature where it can access the microphone, but mydomain.com main page cannot, correct? Um, yeah, I think so. It, it makes sense to do it that way. I'm not sure if um, 
how browsers uh, actually do it, like enabling the microphone, um, if mm -hmm. they restrict it to the current origin, um, or if they don't. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's implemented, but uh, if they implement it, like um, having it on the main domain and on all subdomains, then that's certainly a good idea to only enable it on the subdomain. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I could see that in today's day and age, especially right where everyone's looking for the next greatest way to communicate via video chat. Now, most of the popular ones require a client, but there are several other that just will load that stuff right in the browser. Uh, so controlling that, I think, is super important. Yeah, that's true. Uh, browsers can do that nowadays. It's uh, kind of scary that they're able to do that. Um, so it's it's good to have these um, these security measure, measures in place and actually see that the uh, browser developers kind of um, think about um, making these features even more the, uh, secure than they are already uh, mm -hmm. than they already are. So um, it, it's good to um, to see that. Um, another header is the referrer policy header. And it's uh, kind of interesting because they now finally wrote it correctly. I think um, the actual referrer header only has one R. That was a misspelling, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm not a native English speaker, so maybe you can uh, tell me which one is correct. Um, but uh, the, the policy and the actual referrer header are written differently. And what in the referrer header is, for example, if you um, redirect your user to another website or you have um, uh, simplest ways, if you have a link that you click, then the browser might send the URL um, to the web server that you were on when you clicked the link. Like if you're on Facebook and want to uh, go to securityweekly.com or to netsparker.com, then Facebook um, will be in the referrer header that um, mm -hmm. Security Weekly on Netsparker.com can see. And if you want to, um, if you don't want that, if you don't want the full URL, for example, um, there might be other um, other use cases where you have a Facebook um, where you click on the on a link on a Facebook page and it has the name of the Facebook user in the URL bar, then you don't really, or Facebook doesn't really want to disclose that this was the user um, that had the link on their page. Mm. So what they can do is set a referrer policy that says, for example, like uh, above origin when cross origin, that it would not send the full path to the, um, to the other side, but it would only send the origin like HTTPS, uh, facebook.com and not https facebook.com slash um, any user. That's interesting. So is that uh, a server header that gets passed down to the client? So when I click an external link, it doesn't send all the information about the referrer? It just yes, um, you can send it on your own page. Uh, you, you can set it on your own page. And then if a link on your own page is clicked mm -hmm. then the or then the referrer header will be adjusted yeah. depending on what you write in the policy um there, there, there are many different options such as no referrer which will not send a referrer at all mm -hmm. origin when cross uh, when cross origin it's a little bit uh, weird uh, a weird name but uh, it basically says that 
only the uh, protocol, the port, and the domain name are sent and not any path information. And I think the same origin will um, send all that stuff, um, the path information as well, if the link goes to your own site. If it goes right. to another site, I think it also only sends the origin or something like that. Gotcha. Um, and this helps to prevent information leaks, as I said, um, or, or, or where, where there well, was yeah, more it, privacy it, problem. Yeah, it certainly helps with privacy, right? So that yeah. uh, my Facebook uh, user ID is not leaked to other sites, even though I'm yeah, that's pretty true. sure that's or, happening quite a bit today anyway, but... Yeah. Um, what also, um, what you also might have seen before is when a site um, uses a CSRF token in the URL, and if you um, somehow make the user click, mm -hmm. or, or maybe a session token even, um, and if you make an administrator click a link um, on the page, it might even leak the session token or the CSRF token to the page via the referrer header. And therefore, it uh, makes sense to implement uh, the set of to avoid information leaks like that. And then there's another one, X content type options. I've uh, talked about it briefly. It has only one uh, one value, basically, which is no sniff. And it prevents browsers from doing so-called MIME sniffing. And um, that means that browsers try to guess the content type if none is set, or on, even if one is set in certain situations. And an attacker-controlled um, response can therefore lead to misinterpretation of the content type. Uh, usually, this is used for, for cross-site scripting. So if you um, intend to send only like um, some JSON to, to the user, and the um, an attacker might manage to put some uh, script text in there. A uh, browser might be confused and think it is actually HTML because no content type was set. And then you can um, execute HTML. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the last one for today is actually not a server-side security header. Uh, uh, it's one that the client sends. And um, this is an example of, the, uh, of this. It says SecFetch uh, site, same origin. And it's a set of relatively new security headers. It, as I said, it is client-side instead of, uh, of server-side. And they allow servers to reject suspicious requests. Uh, there are four different headers, uh, SecFetch site, SecFetch mode, SecFetch user, and SecFetch test. They are only available in, current, uh, in Google Chrome currently, and they need uh, further server-side processing. They can so, quickly show you. Uh, yeah, so Sven, in this case, my browser is setting these headers and expecting the server maybe to do something differently based on the headers that I've set as the client. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. So um, what you can see here is just a, a node application. And um, over here is a browser. What I can do now is, for example, go to the URL bar and visit the site. And uh, these uh, headers are sent to the server. Let me see where they are. Um, they are here. It says sec fetch test document, sec uh, fetch mode navigate, sec fetch site none, sec fetch user uh, question mark one. And um, the server actually can see from this information 
how the user accessed the site. In this case, it sees uh, the request originated from an unknown source because we just put it in the URL, but there was no redirection or anything. And it was a navigation because uh, we basically changed the URL, even though you didn't see it because it was the same URL to begin with. But if you would come from a, a different site, it would change this URL. And it was meant to load a document. And a document in this case is basically that uh, you see it here in the browser window. Mm -hmm. And uh, th there are also other ways to access the site, for example, with document location. Um, here it says the request originated from the exact same origin, which was because we executed some JavaScript in this document that redirected us. And um, it was a navigation and was meant to load a document. The, the, this is correct as well because it navigated us to this site and it loaded this site. Oh, the, the, this is very useful information actually um, because you can also see something like this. If you would create an image with the URL to this um, to the server where you implemented this and then put it on the page, it could also see the request originated from the exact same origin. It was a non uh course request and was meant to load an image. So if you have an API endpoint, for example, and you see that it is um, someone tries to load it in an image tag, then this is very suspicious. This yeah. might be um, That's awesome. an attempt to uh, do a CSRF attack mm -hmm. or something like that, or any um, or if it's in, a, in an iframe or something like that, or to measure the loading time um, with a document uh, with an image and uh, see how long it takes to um, the on error event to fire, and this so uh, can the, actually the server yeah. now gets basically telemetry uh, or information on how the client is trying to load the site in terms of not just the origin but the tags and or JavaScript that's being executed to load the page. Yeah, exactly. And um, this can help you a great deal when you yeah. deal with side channel attacks. Um, yeah, so it, it can also uh, tell you, for example, if there was a request from another website, which is also very useful uh, if you want to uh, prevent CSRF or something. Uh, it was a non-course request, and it um, meant to load a script, which might also be um, suspicious if you uh, want just to, if you just want to serve an API um, response, something like that. And um, I, I'm not sure this header will catch on. It's only implemented in Chrome currently. I think there were no, or I, I'm not sure if there were other uh, de developers of browsers mm -hmm. um, signaling that they want to implement it. Um, the, the reason why I'm a little bit suspicious of this will catch on is because um, we, we have a lot of overhead when we send this. Um, we also um, send this every time, even though the, um, the server might not do anything with it. And I'm not sure if, the, if it will be widely implemented. Yeah, um, then, the, you know, the danger of that is uh, if I want to get around all those checks, I may just pretend that I'm a mobile browser. And if they're worried about performance, they may not implement those, you know, checks on the on the server side uh, if it's a mobile browser, right? Yeah, you you could also um, fake uh, if if you want to use curl or something like that. You can fake these um, 
these values here. It's yeah. mostly to um, prevent client-side attacks, uh, like, um, as I said, in the, in the side channel stuff. And yeah, it will, um, it, it is very useful, but uh, as I said, it's also very complicated to implement and um, yeah, not and many people not- will do it probably. It sounds like it's not authentic, like authenticated either, right? Like you could lie and say my request is really coming from here, basically. Yeah, so it's um, not really meant as um, a server-side security feature to um, right. check these. Exactly. Um, yes, I think that's about it. Uh, so, Sven, when um, <coughs> inside of the product itself. Uh, you're obviously in NetSpark are querying a lot of these uh, server-side uh, type things, right? To see what the yes. capabilities are of, of the server, right? And, that, and that's very important because it's, again, very nuanced, very browser-specific uh, in terms of what's compatible between server and client, largely based on the browser. Uh, browsers choose what they want to implement and what they want to deprecate, which I find extremely confusing and very problematic, right? You may find this awesome capability within the DOM, for example, and lo and behold, like no browsers are implementing that today or the browsers have deprecated it, right? But from the server side, when you're scanning, uh, Nespark has taken into account, like what is the server support in terms of headers, in terms of, well, one, security capabilities, uh, and then, you know, what it might be missing in terms of things the server could have set that aren't being set, correct? Yes, exactly. Um we uh, do this very dynamically. We also check um, if it makes sense to set a header like that. And um, if you decide to implement it, um, we will also check whether it's implemented correctly. Because uh, as yeah. I said, there are very um, is a very large amount of pitfalls mm-hmm. that you don't really ha- can think about if you aren't. Um, doing this uh, professionally and keeping track of all the changes that the browser vendors implement. Because as mm-hmm. you saw, um, new uh, features are added, some are deprecated, and keeping track of this is very difficult. And also um, keeping track of the security implications of certain um, of certain settings even. Um, this is also difficult. Because as you see with the X XSS protection header, it changes over time. Mm-hmm. And some of these uh, options may turn out to be insecure and might be removed or are not um, are not the right choice for your specific website. Right. And yeah, some of the some of the options like we talked about server type in the beginning, that's easy because it's like on or off, right? Either I got the response or I didn't. A lot of these options that you talked about on the server side some of it's almost like a regex, right? <laughs> and like, did I implement it correctly or not, right? Yes, that's true. And uh, some also have a very strict syntax. If you forget, for example, a single quote in yep. CSP, this might lead to an invalid um, content security policy and you're not probably det- uh, probably de- uh, protected. And yes, uh, we also check that... Um, the syntax is correct that the correct settings for your website are implemented and um, suggest you certain security headers if they aren't already there. That's awesome. Uh, other comments, questions from uh, the other hosts? So I was, I was wondering, 
Um, I felt like you could write a, a, a security headers for dummies book here, as it mm -hmm. were. Um, are you planning to publish a guide or something? You've got this really good information. Um, That's a good point. Lee. Or we just point everybody to the webcast. Um, yeah, you can also uh, find a lot of information about security headers on our blog. And um, yes, but um, this uh, presentation was basically to get an overview over what uh, security headers are out there. Um, maybe you even found some that would be very beneficial to your application, but you haven't implemented it yet uh, because either you didn't know what they actually do or you haven't heard of them before. And um, it's a very good um, starting point if you want to um, read more about how they work and what the syntax is. And um, yeah, I think um, just just knowing about it and not only seeing um, these headers and the and, and requests that you might see in the developer console or something like that um, is, is very beneficial. Um, and you... you um, actually see what they are good for. Yeah, and it changes all the time. You know, like I said, researching just uh, how the browser interprets uh, not just JavaScript, but CSS as well, right, is like a moving target all the time. They're constantly adding new features that are maybe implemented, maybe not, deprecating other features uh, all the time. So it's, it's a moving target, uh, which makes it uh, ripe for security vulnerabilities to be quite honest yes um, go ahead yeah go ahead go ahead um uh yeah i just wanted to say that um css is actually a good example because you just uh, often see these um prefixed css directives um where it says uh, dash dash webkit or, or dash dash mozilla or something like that and um, that, that, that already tells you that some browser um, developers have different opinions on how a feature should be implemented or, or even implement features that others don't and remove features that others still have. Um, so that is uh, a good example on, on why you should be up to date or um, have some, some tooling that helps you managing your mm -hmm. uh, security headers. Lee? Uh, yeah, so I was just going to ask, you know, I know that, um, Paul, you're very much aware of the of the nuances in the browser. You know, well, a very small, very small percentage. Uh, uh, and I'm I aware the problem exists, and in, in like my small world, like I've implemented some CSS to do one thing, and then I'm like, well, that's not supported by any browser. I'm like, that that really sucks. And then, you know, like Sven was saying, then there's browser-specific CSS. So then you got blocks of CSS for Mozilla, blocks of CSS for, for Chrome. So now like you're not just managing the security vulnerabilities in a security context, even the user interface aspect of it uh, for one operating system, but another, right? Essentially the browser is the operating system. And that, that can lead to a lot of uh, you know, interesting issues uh, in terms of if they're using Mozilla, that could be a security vulnerability, but you know we fixed that problem in Chrome. So, you know, managing these vulnerabilities across all these browsers and all these like really nuanced uh, edge cases that are constantly changing can just be a recipe for disaster in terms of security. 
So what I was going to ask Fen is, do you think people are uh, developers, web developers, I guess, are sufficiently aware of these nuances or are they all kind of wearing rose cluttered glasses or like I said, Paul's pretty keened in on where it's really crossing his, his path. Um, I think that uh, a lot of developers aren't really aware of this. Um, and that is also because you don't really have sufficient uh, feedback if, uh, um, if a, uh, if a CSP director, for example, if it's um, very, if it's not very strict, then your um, your browser won't tell you that. It will just um, think that you wanted to have a very um, and, and not so strict um, and not so strict policy, even though you wanted to make it extra secure, for example. Um, but but you don't really see this stuff. You um, you see that it works. Your site loads fine, and you see that it now shows your um, CSP header and the response. So you think CSP is activated. You're safe from now on. But uh, that might not really be the case um, because you just uh, made a CSP directive that allows anything by default. Well, and you know that that's that's the rub, right? Is I think for web developers. If the user has a bad experience in any capacity, the web developer is going to fix that and be aware of those problems because it's going to bubble to the surface, right? They're going to get a ticket because someone visited the website and it didn't render right in their browser and a developer is going to fix it. And they may relax security restrictions so that it renders in more people's browsers, right? And they don't get more tickets. What's not bubbling to the surface unless they have you know, scanning tools and other things that are looking at the site for security reasons is all those security things, right? Is all the, the content security policies and in those other headers that are speaking to security, that's only going to come across the developer's desk once you've already been breached and by then it's too late. Oh. Ouch. Yeah. That's kind of scary. Well, Sven, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. It was a fantastic segment um, and are, are you going to publish the slides? We should try and publish those slides somewhere. I don't check, check yeah. back. We'll, we'll find a way to, to get some of that information out there. Exactly. Maybe you can, uh, put in the show notes or something like that. And, yeah. uh, I can share it with you. Absolutely. We'll, we'll try, we'll try and get those slides out there. Uh, people that want to learn more can go to securityweekly.com forward slash net sparker. Uh, and, uh, they've got uh, both the full client and, a uh, cloud-based scanner uh, that is absolutely awesome and uh, fueled by research by, by people like Sven. So make sure you check it out. Sven, thank you so much uh, for appearing on the show tonight. Thanks for having me. With that, we'll take a short break, come back, cover the security news for this week. NetSparker, the developers of a comprehensive automated web security platform that includes web vulnerability scanning, assessment, and management. NetSparker's desktop and cloud-based security solutions employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities and provides a proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. 
The biggest problem in security that remains unsolved is flat networks inside the cloud and data center that allow threats to move laterally and compromise vulnerable targets. But micro-segmentation using traditional firewalls is too complex and time-consuming. There's a better approach. Edgewise Zero Trust Auto Segmentation. Edgewise is impossibly simple micro-segmentation. Using the identity of machines and software that are communicating, Edgewise offers the strongest protection that adapts automatically to changes. Protect any application in any cloud without any changes to your network by visiting Security Week com forward slash edgewise. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Quick announcement, Layery is going virtual. The conference, which is largely focused on social engineering, uh, will be held on Saturday, June 6th. Look at the beautiful graphic Johnny made. There's an Whoa. Easter egg in there, too. Make sure you go look for it. You said Layer 8. I thought originally, initially, you said Larry. I'm like, Larry no. is going virtual? Layer 8. Larry is Larry. virtual right now via Enunciate. Zoom. Uh, Security Week. So Saturday, June 6th, Security <laughs> Weekly listeners save $20 off by visiting Layer8Conference.com. Use our promo code Security Weekly before selecting your ticket. Layer 8 is supporting a number of charities. Uh, that you can donate to in the ticket purchasing process, so make sure you do that. Some of the Security Weekly team will be on the Discord channel for Layer 8 in our own channel, uh, answering questions and doing some contests. Also, learn how hidden vulnerabilities lead to application compromise in our next webcast with Sneak. I'm super excited about this because uh, Sneak has been creating some awesome content, which I use to help secure some of our containers. Uh, and Sneak has just been selected as the platform that Docker will use uh, to help scan some uh, of the Docker images in Docker Hub. Actually, all of them. Uh, so register for our upcoming webcast uh, with them by going to securityweekly.com forward slash webcast. If you missed one, uh, go to securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. The last one that I did with Core Security, now a help systems company, uh, I showed you a string of vulnerabilities and exploits that you could easily underestimate in your prioritization of vulnerabilities and how those can be used to not only gain root access to your containers, but fully compromise uh, the underlying Docker host. So lots of cool stuff. Uh, speaking of cool stuff, we were talking briefly about you know being on quarantine and doing stuff in our homes and wiring stuff. And Larry's working on uh, electrical wiring. Uh, I know I'm up to like six access points in my <laughs> in my home. Oh, jeez, Paul, how many do you need? <laughs> well, I mean, I had the original three, and then I bought new ones, and I was like, I could use one outside, and then I'm like, well, if I have one outside in the back, like, I really want to be, if I'm like checking my mail at the mailbox in the front of my house, I really want to be able to go on my phone and still be on my Wi-Fi, or if I'm talking to my neighbors, which I do a lot of right now because we all have young children and we're all outside talking i want good wi-fi coverage so i'm gonna mount i'm mounting one in the garage this part of the hole it's just it's out of control you and turn then down like the the whole uh, the whole threshold and and power distribution on those i, I so, so that's what i'm on that's exactly what i'm on now is looking into how i distribute the clients across there and manage the interference and coverage amongst all six access points across multiple spectrums, right? Because some are BGN, some are a uh, NAC, <laughs> right? Um, and then <laughs> Jeff's only his bullshit card. Is that just to throw me off? <laughs> so <laughs> sounds like a personal problem to me, Paul. Right. <laughs> Uh, but then, Tyler, uh, you got me thinking about last week. I don't know if it was on air or not. You were like, well, you know, what about when you ran one Ethernet cable and thought that was going to be enough, and then you dropped like a small switch 
And then how do you, what if you have different devices you want to put on different VLANs? So I broke down and I, I ordered three more switches, which are Cisco SG250 series, makes an eight-port managed uh, Cisco switch. And I got a great price on those. Uh, I got three of them for like 400 bucks. Uh, and so those are going to replace my remote locations, also be trunk ports to carry the VLAN information so that I can segment in all my different segmented areas. And it's all leading up. I really want to do a webcast similar to the one that Joff did. Uh, is that documented in, in Visio? Yes, and there's going to be a Visio diagram. <laughs> there's like going to be a Because right? <laughs> we're all like we're at home, so we got to like make sure our home network uh, is uh, optim uh, is operating in the optimal uh, performance. Uh, now, now, you Paul, know what you need next. You've got to be careful. You're going to need, you're going to need a, a better a better pipe home and probably redundancy. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Now, and then right. I got to upgrade my internet, so I'm definitely going to do that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Paul, Paul next, always he's going to be running. He's going to be asking for a provider that'll exchange BGP routes with him. <laughs> he will go multi-homed. <laughs> like it's going to be awesome. Watch him go. Point, point to the studio. Yeah, like <laughs> so. What what routing protocol are you using uh, at home? Is it is it BGP or is it IGMP? What is it? What is it? <laughs> is it OSPF? <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing, Paul. But you know, if you run IPv6, though, depending on how many VLANs you got, be careful with those trunks because IPv6 is multicast heavy. Oh, interesting. Interesting. It's that, a, that IPv6 will bite you every time. I, so my strategy oh. right now is just to turn it off. That's really what I, it, which is bad. If you, um, I, I, I spent like four days. I actually got really interested and mm. wrote an entire how to secure a perimeter with IPv6 blog. So mm -hmm. if any if anybody's interested in that, go go to Black Hills and you'll see it. Um, and, Definitely and on I the list. I researched it soup, soup to nuts. Yeah. Um, so. That's actually pretty awesome. Places. I've actually looked into that, and that's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. So, so I just put a seminal blog out there because I couldn't find anything on it. I'll be honest; there was nothing out there. There wasn't the anything good that you could understand, anyway. Like from a simple standpoint, like unless you're doing full IPv6, IPv4 handout, and you're in an enterprise with enterprise gear, it didn't work. Right, right, and I called this part one. And this thing's like a ten-page blog. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. That's awesome. Um, Definitely. But, it, but it's called "Securely Deploying IPv6 in 2020: Part One Internet-Facing Perimeter." So, go check it out. Sweet. Uh, All I can say is, it's about time. Um, Larry, I, you had mentioned this uh, Marcus Hutchins Wired interview. I saw yeah. it, but I, I did not read it. You, you know. I actually I thought it was fantastic in that it really Marcus Larry? really talked about where he Larry, came from. Larry, we can't hear you, Larry. Oh, really? I can hear Larry. I can I can hear him. It's just you, John. I, I can hear Larry. Johnny, what's going oh. on? Oh, and so this article, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. wired wired coverage can be uh, a little spotty, um, but there are yeah. some great writers at Wired, uh, and then some other ones. I'm like, eh. Well, of course, Andy Greenberg is just one of the most oh, amazing yeah. journalists uh, Absolutely. ever Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, did this I mean, article. So, it, yeah. It, it, really, it really gave Marcus's whole story from, you know, like how he got into information security, how he got started with the computers, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, you know, through so many of us, it was like he escaped because he got picked on and he got bullied and he didn't want to have to deal with people. And 
then he learned about all then he got, this Then he got picked stuff. on and bullied by the U.S. government, you could say. Yeah, maybe a way? little bit. A little but, bit. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were a couple of things that were they were pretty shocking that sort of came out in that. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the big ones was actually how much meth he had taken <laughs> to fuel some of his coding practices, which he fully admits. Um, I I think but, if he, you know, and I haven't read the article, but I think if he can admit that he did make some mistakes, like all of us do, right? He did. We're, we're, he, we he all make mistakes, did. right? Um, but recognize that he did. And be a better person for it. He has my utmost respect, right? And that—that's kind of what I sense from his story, right? Like that, yeah, I made mistakes along the way, um, but his, you know, has largely recognized them and, and grown from it, right? Yep, absolutely. And you know, we we all do these things. We all make mistakes, and you know, admit it. And and that's really what he did was he, he was admitting you know that he made mistakes mm -hmm. and he's much the better person for making those mistakes. But, but he did a lot of good too. I don't want to downplay oh. that in the article as well. For sure, right? Like the mistakes were the minority, like in terms of percentage, right? From the good stuff that he's done is also kind of what I garner from just covering Marcus's story over the years. Yep, I mean. From looking at the the article, when he was as he was telling the story, uh, he said he had good intentions for doing things like uh, he never wanted to create a banking malware stuff, uh, so he refused to. And he could see where his quote business partner was going that he wanted to turn into a banking trojan, uh, and he said no. But uh, turns out the business partner just went and got someone else to do it for him, mm -hmm. and then said, oh, "Hey Marcus, you need to put this in your code." Well, otherwise, you're not going to make any money. And uh, oh, by the way, I have your home address because I've mailed you shit, and I can turn you over to the feds. Mm. So people took advantage of him along the way. Ab absolutely, and and he admits that he got taken advantage of because of his own mistakes. Mm. Interesting. No. Yeah. So I want to ask questions, but I also want to read the article, and I don't want to have any spoilers out there. So I will, I will defer. Yeah, I you know, given that I've seen the journalist who covered it um, and such, I, I definitely want to read it too and inform my own opinion. Well, Jeff, I agree. Well, let me ask this question, Larry. Do you think that the article tells the full story and does it do justice to all sides to the story? That's it. I think it does. I think it does. Good. Then don't tell me anymore. I want to read it. <laughs> okay. And you may you may disagree with me. Um, it is definitely told from the story from Marcus's side, um, but I think they also made a fair, and he did a great job, you know, being fair about the government's role, U.S. government's role, and their their tactics and so forth. Um, so, right. I, I think it was fair. Uh, maybe maybe we'll revisit it later after we've all had a chance to read it. Tyler, maybe we can Tyler, get Marcus are you, on the uh, show. Hold on, Tyler, are you rocking a tank top right now? Is that what's what is going on? What is going on? I don't, I, we can't see him. We can't see oh, it. Oh, it's beautiful, Say something. man. Beautiful. Say something. Are you there going you go. to Bermuda? Oh. Is it? Hey, hey, Tyler, flex, flex a muscle for us, man. Come on. He probably can't hear us. His camera's dead. Wait. He's flexing his Wait. brain muscle. Oh, Tyler. He totally can't hear us. He totally can't hear us right now. <laughs> now we're seeing is that his security cameras is that what anyway um i i just <laughs> what's his battery power down to 
I wanted it's to go zero. to. I had to switch cameras. I wanted to go to a a really fun story in kind of a uh, Peter Griffin like what really grinds my gears kind of moment. Um, Lindsay the, Lohan. The Lindsay Lohan, yes. Yeah. <laughs> in Stuxnet, right? Um, so there was an article from uh, Dark Reading, right? Which no, they make a that. lot of articles, right? A lot of some good, some not so good, to be quite honest. Um, and they talked about the top three cybersecurity myths. Um, and and we'll, we'll go through them. We can, we can debate each one as much as, or as little as you want. Uh, so basically, myth one, security team is going to protect me. Myth two, IT professionals don't fall for cyber attacks. Myth three, cyber attacks are confined, confined to the digital world. And also, what I thought was really interesting was uh, the perspective this article had on physical security. They state that there are other examples, too, of physical security being important. The Stuxnet worm that ravaged Iran's Natanz nuclear facility was delivered via a flash drive that was plugged straight into one of the facility's computers. Uh, just reading into that sentence, because it overlaps with <laughs> my research, right? So I want to say, look, yeah, they did that, sure. It was in, however, collaboration with both U.S. and Israeli spy agencies right so uh cia and Mossad were both involved in that in that operation to some capacity to be able to do that so like if you're an attacker with access to the cia and or Mossad, you might have some pretty good success uh doing that they also uh as part of this attack had an insider that if you factor into the compile times of the malware and infection times that there were earlier versions of Stuxnet, basically, that were infecting computers much quicker because they had an insider. Later versions had a longer time between compile time and infection time, which means, did they lose their insider? Was their insider killed and or detained by the Iranian government, right, uh, in, in that process? Some things we may never know about this operation, right? Um, so you have to factor that in that, you know, not only did they have international spy agencies, they also leveraged probably those spy agencies to leverage insiders within there uh, to get this malware installed via USB thumb drives. They also, which I think is sometimes left out of some of the details in this entire attack, is they, in some timeline, they also infected uh, Step 7 uh, Siemens uh, controller project files, right? Which you would create on a workstation that maybe is connected to the, or is connected to the internet. You create that project file. Stuxnet infected that project file. They then took that project file over on a USB thumb drive and plugged it into a control system that was on the air-gapped network. That's, it's like a nuanced thing. It wasn't necessarily an infected USB thumb drive. The infection happened on a computer that they knew would have a thumb drive plugged into it to copy the file, which carried the payload in the, in the malware that then in, infected the system that they would take that over to the, the air gap, uh, air gap which network. Which is probably one of the, ven the vendor's laptops, right? Like, that's typically how that it, works. It could be a contractor, right? Uh, Tyler, you're absolutely correct, right? Um, and so, yes, physical attacks are in play. Um, Will will they all go to this length? Likely not. Um, I mean, if you overtake a Middle Eastern country and start enriching uranium with intent of, <laughs> of harming other countries, 
you might be subject to this, you know, this level of attacks. Um, uh, Now, having said that, there are other earlier versions of Stuxnet. And I I didn't know any of this. This book is absolutely fascinating to put in this context, right? The earliest versions of, uh, I think it was Flame, right? Um, That was the kind of like precursor that was infecting other systems in other countries to gain intelligence about like how is Iran uh, obtaining the centrifuges, right? How are they obtaining the technical data to understand how to build them? Like getting the supplies and learning how to build them are two different things. And there was malware several years before any of us ever uttered the word Stuxnet and ever dreamed that this malware could exist. Several years prior, they were doing intelligence gathering. Let's put that in context of a previous conversation about a pen test and a red team, right? I mean, your typical time frame is weeks, and then in, as they get more advanced, maybe months. I mean, yep. uh, Tyler, Larry, yeah, others, but, like, have you done it, an engagement you, I mean, that's gone can, across three? How can you emulate an, a, a real-world attacker from the standpoint of APT in a time box scenario? That's, that's going the, here, right, that's exactly. That's the difficult of taking a red team, yes. yeah, calling it a red team, that is doing true emulation. Right. You can only do that so much, but that still means you have to have that extended time period and very specific goals. And if those goals are to destroy or gain access to a power grid and kill a very large transformer, likely that's going to have to have some caveats put into a red team as far as a, a real engagement goes because you're not going to stand up a transformer. You're not going to be able to get the equipment. You're not going to be able to build a centrifuge and be able to test against that as a what if from a red team standpoint. Right, like the labs, uh, so Tyler, in the, the labs in the U.S. and that were like on our side and also making the so assumption P- like... P&L, INL. Like, yeah. So, yeah, like the U.S. has like not confirmed that it was the U.S. Like, let's just throw that out there. However, all the evidence points to it was a collaborative uh, operation between U.S. and Israel, right? I mean, like we, we all know this. Like, there's nothing 100% definitive. No one's admitted to it. But the evidence we have leads us down this path. But when got, you look into... What, but what I didn't know about this particular attack that I think is interesting when we think about physical attacks and how they could manifest against various organizations, Stuxnet stands out because it wasn't just that they were destroying centrifuges. And I think that's the common narrative that we as security professionals may come to understand that, oh, we wrote a virus, it destroyed centrifuges. Oh my God, was it so much more than that? They were not only controlling the pressure valves, right? So not controlling the spinning of the centrifuge, but controlling the flow of the gas in and out of those centrifuges was one tactic. The the other tactic was not just slowing them down and speeding them up to make them crash and, and blow up, but slowing them down so it slowed the enrichment process down such that the end product was 25 to 50% less than we would have normally gotten because all we and do is just... And they had to replace slow- all that hardware, continually have to replace that hardware, oh, wait yeah. for the ship time, wait for the vendor to come put it in because they thought they had faulty hardware because the numbers had to make sense. Yes. There's math that correlates to this. And when that output doesn't end up meeting that, how can you explain it if you're not thinking about the attack and cyber side of that? In some cases, they attribute it to when they constructed the centrifuges, they weren't wearing gloves 
and the oils <laughs> from people's hands were getting on the centrifuges, which was disrupting it, which is actually a real thing. Um, and so it just, just wasn't the, the real problem. <laughs> the intricacies in this attack are just uh, absolutely amazing. And while the, intric- the intricacies are amazing, Paul, but but I do want to make a comment. Oh, you can't hear me. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Joff. If you look back at the original article for a minute, the first sentence is, with millions of employees now attempting to work from home, it's vital to challenge misconceptions about cybersecurity. How is a nation-state attack relevant to that opening sentence at all? It's not. Well, now, but to your point, Joff, somewhat uh, kind of an offshoot in my, in my thinking was when we think about physical attacks, right? This article also leads off with, you know, a female entered our corporation's headquarters, said that she just got into a car accident. We asked her if she was okay, and she said, yeah, I just need to use your restroom. And when she went to go use the restroom, lo and behold, she used a USB thumb drive to compromise multiple computers. The article talks about that as like this implausible scenario. It actually sounded like from the article that that's a real scenario. I think if any of us on this show and listening, right, had to construct a social engineering attack knowing what we know, it would probably look like that or something similar, yeah. right? I mean, so that is not implausible think, in my, you know, I absolutely oh, that's, jump. That's way yeah. too complex. We do that. We do I, it way I, easier I think than the, that. I, mean, I think the article... You walk, you walk in, you look like you own it, and you just go do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think the, the article completely missed the target. They're trying to highlight myths about working from home and cybersecurity. Well, come on. Right. So then my thinking, Joff, is, well, hold on. If we're not all working at the corporate headquarters, does that mean that some of us might be come under attack in our homes? Of course, it's to, to some capacity, right? I mean, we yeah, talked sure. about this, Larry, actually years ago on the show when Wi-Fi was even way more insecure than it is now, right? Uh, in, in early days, and that you could, through means of open source intelligence gathering, figure out where strategic people were working from home and their yep. home wireless networks are way easier to break into than the corporate one. So uh, it's, it's, that's just the next still, step it, to translate to physical so, attacks. So pulling, pulling that it's, example it's out still, instead of Stuxnet would have, or, or an example that's analogous to that would have been a much better. Agree, Josh. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yep. Larry. Yeah, I was kind of wondering how we got on Stuxnet from th- three top cybersecurity myths. But, but, yeah, it's just. Well, they mentioned it in the article. Uh, Jeff, because one of their security myths was... But we've spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time on it. Enunciate, Jeff! <laughs> inordinate. What are you holding up, Jeff? What is that? This is that, that girl that broke into your, your network. She knows which buttons to push. This is yeah, advertising. She looks like from a cybersecurity threat, by this God. This is advertising from the late 90. This is a hacker. Oh. She's she's on a Windows 95 box. This This is what a hacker looks like. Oh, that's what a hacker looks like. It's a anyway. stereotypical hacker. It's um, I just from the just want to relate some experience here. That is not my stereotypical experience. I'm just I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, in any in any respect, right? Hacking yeah. or otherwise. Sorry, Larry. Did you have comments about uh, yeah, hacking uh, into so people's it, Wi-Fi? Yeah, it's still largely the same. I mean, there's been some improvements to Wi-Fi mm-hmm. for us to not be attacking high value targets at home but so much of it is still the same some of the same theories still apply you just might need to work a little harder to get the information that you need yep but 
it is it's it's all still relevant to those same things that we were talking about years ago yep. again it's just harder to get that data well, uh, you were saying something interesting to, uh, to, to, sorry, Jeff's, uh, to, Jeff, to Jeff's advertisement yeah cleaning boxes deep cleaning yesterday I found the sands on-site guide in which we did the podcast in at sands in Las Vegas mm-hmm. the first time oh that was oh, a wow. pivotal moment in security weekly history isn't yes. it fun it's to very, be home and be able to clean your office out right and dig up yeah all this I stuff? also I also found the brochure from white wolf yep. when they had the exercise prior yep. to net wars and we were the hosts yep all oh, that awesome. just that is used awesome. to say all that went in the recycling bin. Uh, now, Larry, it, it's interesting. As I start to uh, dabble back into some of the Wi-Fi stuff, you told me something interesting that um, Kismet, which Mike has done just a fantastic job in keeping up with that. I, I, I tell you what, I went to the Kismet. One thing that impressed me, I went to Mike's website, and I was like, all right, how do I get this on Ubuntu 20.04? And Mike's like, oh, dude, we got you covered. Like, there's a package repo. You just add it, and then you do apt get and install. Yeah. I'm like, dude, yeah. you. I now I remember like how much I love you. <laughs> like, really, like that. Is, <laughs> it was really right. touching to me that that that, that Mike had had done that. Uh, but you told do me you something guys interesting. Need a that moment when you run Kismet now, it is in the background collecting uh, and identifying those uh, packet captures you need to uh, be able to do WPA cracking without doing a deauth attack correct 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 the, it, it collects the pmk id of mm-hmm. observing clients joining those networks uh and or uh sorry joining those networks without doing the uh attacks and the pmk id uh of the beacon frames so no active attacks needed Ooh, that's it's so nice. it's so much fun I, so i was i was showing my my kids at home right because it was work from home day school from home day uh, and I was showing that to them. And, and it's funny. Now we refer to our neighbors by their Wi-Fi SSIDs. Um, the nice. most hilarious one is one of my neighbors owns a funeral home. Uh, and his SSID is Funerals Rock. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I walk by. I'm like, what's up, Funerals Rock? <laughs> I'm like, what's up, cheeseburgers are awesome. <laughs> I just, it's. So my, see, am see, I the only one hoping he's not working from home? Right. <laughs> well, well, Paul, you know which buttons to push. Oh my! Why didn't he call to, his uh, network dead serious? That's what I'm wondering. Right. <laughs> I don't get a chance to figure the out dead who zone. my neighbors are for those types of things. But uh, I was, it was having a moment the other day with uh, my Sans class doing the live online teaching remotely, and I was showing them Kismet. And, and you know everybody says nobody runs web networks anymore, and I'm like, right. look, nope. look right here in my active yep. Kismet stuff. There's a web network, because <laughs> when FiOS came through and they deployed all these Action Tech routers, they were all mm-hmm. web. And I'm realizing, I still have an Action Tech router from those days in my basement running mm. to supply all the data for the set top boxes, and I disabled that years ago. Did I really? Right, or you think you did? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I think exactly. that the you know to get back to this article, the myth that cyber attacks are confined to the digital world, I I, I think there's a lot of layers to peel back there, right? Like mm-hmm. we're talking about Wi-Fi attacks and being in physical proximity, uh, maybe to a high value target that's working from home, which in today's world is you know very likely uh, an attack vector. Um, I do want to you know maybe cover some of the other ones. 
um, the security team will protect me and that <laughs> IT professionals don't fall for cyber attacks. I, I don't know. Well, that I, these... I've been waiting to talk about myth number one. Okay, let's do cause... myth number one. The security team is going to protect me. Therefore, basically what the article, the way I read it was that users kind of have this assumption that they don't need to pay attention to security because we have a security team and they're going to take care of it. Absolutely. I, I, I think that is uh, pernicious in, in most organizations because uh, there's, and I want to ask a question in, in response to this, but I, I, you know, many users, many employees and companies assume that because of whatever security program whatever security teams exist and they they already know that they are blocked from going to certain websites and certain emails that they send get get uh blocked or you know they can't put on attachments they can't download applications and load them and all that kind of stuff they assume that security is somebody else's responsibility yeah and i think that's not necessarily a myth but i think it's a mistake but but the flip side of that is so much of the security uh, vendor side of the industry is trying to promote and push, and we talk about it all the time, automation, automation, we got to have technology, we got to have technology that attempts to do all the security for everybody. So where's, where's the middle ground there? Because security teams certainly try to do all the security for everybody, but... Uh, I mean, I have an opinion, but I want to hear other people's opinions. Well, I, What's uh, the middle ground? Yeah, because I, I think it's a too too much of a generalization to say that security is everyone's responsibility. Like, what does that mean? Or security mm -hmm. is the security team's responsibility. I, I think that everyone has a certain level of responsibility dependent upon what your role is in the organization. So let's say you're the CEO and founder of the organization. I think one of the primary roles that you play in terms of security is establishing processes that make your business more resilient, right? I think when you get down to the I user level... I disagree, but keep, keep going. I think when you get down to the user level, you do have some level of responsibility, but largely your responsibilities are more about getting your job done, having some knowledge and awareness of security vulnerabilities, input into the process to make sure that there is integrity into the process so that there are no security vulnerabilities, the security and IT teams have a different set of responsibilities. Now, I think Utopia is we build security and processes and technology for the business where the users have much less uh, kind of worry and responsibility about security. I don't think we're there yet. I still think there is a responsibility for security that's shared in everyone that works in the organization. At what level depends on a lot of different variables, the maturity of your company, your processes, the, 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 what vertically, the whole thing. There's a lot of variables in there. I think that uh, I, I want to rebut your, your initial statement a little bit in terms of the primary responsibility of the CEO. I think it's more than what you said. It's to set an example that security is something that's going to be done and the security rules and regulations and annoying things that you have to do are all going to be taken seriously. So I think really CEOs need to sort of set the bar, lead by example, that security is something you do. Because you know and I know, and most of us, we all know, that the worst offenders, and it sort of, sort of drifts down to myth number two, um, 
the worst offenders of the, whatever the existing cyber, you know, cyber rules, security rules are that in organizations are typically the admins and, and those with privileged access, or it's the, it's the people that like, I, I, I know the rules, but I also have to get my job done. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm cheating, but I, I really have to do this because the boss wants it done. And, and that's where setting the example from the, from the top down that no, it, you know, we're going to follow the rules, even though they're a little bit painful at times and, and they're a little bit cumbersome at times, we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think that we as leaders and security professionals need to have security, not be as much of a hurdle. And I know it's a balance between security and usability. Right. And I think it's a great leader that recognizes, for example, Hey, we need to share this data. Let's build the easiest way possible in the most secure way possible to share this data. And let's stick to that. I think if it's Mm -hmm. something that, and I agree, Jeff, Sometimes as leaders and others in the organization, we're like, I need to get stuff done. And it's easier for me to go down and share this document in an insecure manner rather than a secure manner. Uh, And it's just easier to do it more insecurely, right? And we need to recognize that there are more secure ways to do this. And let's have a process that makes it easier to do it more securely and a process that puts some checks and balances in there to make sure that when we are doing this process that we're not going to be the victim of fraud, right? And I I think that's not just a security thing. That's a great business leadership thing, right? It's the integrity of your business, right? We're not going to process this, you know, claim for $2 million or whatever it is. We're going to have a process that checks to make sure that that person is who they say they are, right? And we're going to leverage as much security technology as we can to, to validate that. But sometimes a lot of what catches fraud today is the process. It's the fact that I need to send a fax. It's the fact that mm-hmm. I need to talk to someone, right? When I talk to, you know, the armor blocks and great horns of the world that have fantastic technology to prevent that business email or other communication method compromise, you know, what, what they'll also say is we have to rely on processes and checks and balances to make sure that fraud is not being committed. You know, I actually had another thought just now, and it ties back to our first segment with Jason and talking about, you know, sort of our our problem as security professionals with communication or good communication. Um, I've been to too many organizations where the security teams, the security organizations are – uh, they live behind locked doors. They're in super, basically skiffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're isolated from the rest of the organization, and they exude this persona of we're watching everything, we're yep. monitoring everything. You can't do anything without our knowledge, so don't you dare try to break all the rules. And I think that sort of perpetuates that this myth that the security team is going to protect yeah, me because I they've agree. got eyes on everything. Yeah. So maybe part of the solution to debunking this myth or demystifying it is somehow tied to this need to get out and you know leave your leave your sock in your knock and go out and and and, and hang out with your coworkers and you know talk to them about security and how yeah. involved it is and all the nuances and processes. And no, like I I agree, and I think the balance that many of us have to work with is there are times when we need to be isolated and and get stuff done and really focus on uh, the objectives and largely technical tasks, right? But we have to balance that, to your point, Jeff, with 
communicating and working with our coworkers to make them understand the de- some of the details about the threats to help them uh, and our organization understand risk, risk tolerance, what goes into the risk equation, which we've talked about on, on various different shows and very much a, a theme on your show, Jeff, Security and Compliance Weekly, right? There's a lot of factors right. that, that go into it, some of which can be you know, highly automated, many of which are largely subjective, right? And we were talking about yep. this, I think, on Enterprise Security Weekly, right? Like the impact and probability and or likelihood the uh, elements to risk are largely subjective and I think an opportunity for technical security people to, to come out of the dark basement, right, and talk to people right. uh, about that and not just talk to them and say, yeah, like, no, you can't do this, right? Like, actually talk about the risk. Like, what is the likelihood, the probability, the impact? And, and, and also well, know and, when to, like, stop talking and listen, too, right? Well, and, and talking about it in a way that is understandable and, yeah. and makes sense and not the sky is falling because, mm-hmm. like, the, like the parable, uh, you know, kid's story, you know, if, if you're running around saying the sky is falling too much, people tend to ignore you. Right. And, and, and not every vulnerability is drop everything that we're doing. We've got to fix this now. Some right. are. Not all of them. But I, I think that's my point with Stuxnet too, right? Because you could look at right. that as an example and say, oh, my God, the sky is falling. Like, what if someone were to go to that length to compromise our organization, right? That's oftentimes the wrong approach, right? You got to put th- that in perspective and, and manage and, and balance risk with the business, uh, uh, understand the threats, and have a more methodical approach rather than just looking at, oh, my God, there could be physical attacks and we have to prevent against every single one of them, right? Well, Uh, I I think a a similar, and maybe it's a little bit easier to understand, maybe it's harder to understand, I don't know, but Spectre and Meltdown. mm. The devastating, oh, my God, you know, there's there's issues at the core of the the systems. Yeah, but, but what does that really mean to most people? Right. I think I think one of the issues there, though, really is we end up with like this week, for example, looking looking our our news links. There's one, two, three, four, five, six different breaches that have happened, and so yep. the noise level from all the breaches. Well, if these guys can't protect themselves and this happens, like we can't do anything, or you know, breaches are going to happen. That kind of mantra and stigma has also not – it's making you know this less impactful. Like we don't even remember the breaches last week because we've got 10 new this week. Mm. So really it's become a almost an overexposure of what's going on from a defensive standpoint and who can actually defend against it and who's in the news lately. Like does it, does it even matter if we get breached? It's starting to take some of the onus and some of the responsibility and some of the pressure off of a lot of these companies because they just – Chalk it up to APT. Well, and what's interesting, Tyler, you know, my story number 11. So EasyJet had a data breach. Nine million Mm. customers are affected. And what I gleaned from this article was a comment from a security vendor. And I I, I don't think it's a, a, you know, I wouldn't starkly disagree with this comment. comment, But um, this person said many, however, still need to understand that there's a better way to manage security, risk, and compliance requirements and it's most certainly not is uh, it certainly is not what we've always done. 
in an industry, speaking to the airline industry, that has defined automation and process efficiencies, applying the same to information security would quite literally revolutionize their ability to detect, respond, and mitigate against largely traditional raft of attack TTPs that we've seen targeted at aviation the aviation space this past decade. Uh, I mean, do you agree? Do okay, you agree with that? I don't great. know if I starkly disagree with that. To be honest with you, well, I don't disagree. But okay, let's let's dissect that. If someone had that solution, and I kind of, I kind of ping on this a little bit because it's it's a, it's a nuance that journalists just take. If you just did this, it would go away. Yeah. If it was easy, it's, companies it's that are spending billions of dollars would have done it. So it is not just a solution that someone has come up with. So I think that this is kind of one of those nuances where you can't just say, if you just did this and revolutionized it, well, how? How do you do that? And if you figured that out, let us know because you've now got a multi-billion dollar business that could then tackle that problem and help the entire world. Yeah, and while I don't necessarily like disagree with the statement, I will say that there are – uh, very interesting differences between building an automa automation for a business process where I think you can more closely define the knowns and unknowns, right? And so, like, if, for example, in our own processes, right, in defining software, in our process, you know, we're like, I want to be able to create episodes and segments into the future, right? And there's some stuff that we know and stuff that we don't know those are pretty easily definable, right? Like I know there's a company that wants to appear on the show two months from now. And I know, maybe I know the topic they want to talk about. And I know the company that wants to, you know, book that reservation. And so we can start to define and, and design software around that. When you get to security, there's so many unknowns, right? Like there's just way too many variables to be able to build an automated process around detection and, and that, response that it makes it, I think, harder. The business the business can fit with inside of those automations right mm. because at the end of the day we've said this before making money is the capitalist idea that's the point of being in business and so if this security and automation hinders that ability for business to happen right in the way that it must happen for the clients and and the way the business model is set up then that defeats the purpose why are you securing something that is not going to be a viable business option mm. Yeah, because the, you know the uh, attacker techniques change, your own defenses change, and with this whole pandemic, like your uh, complete architecture changes, right? And the variables that that changes in security is just staggering compared to I think when you know in this comparison to the aviation industry, like there's a pretty well defined process for like you have passengers. They want to get in a plane. They want to go from point A to point B, right? <laughs> like, there's not too much change in the in some of those variables. And certainly, September 11th changed a lot of those variables in a very significant way. The industry, you know, adapted. I think that the the digital uh, and and kind of cyber threats are kind of like a, a the way the airline industry changed for September 11th. We're changing like that. Sometimes every day, sometimes every week, sometimes every month, right? There's a yep. new attack. There's a new uh, vector, right? There's just so many you're also more variables. Taking an industry, you're taking an industry like ICS, right, that's designed to have these safety protocols mm -hmm. and these uh, longstanding 20-year you know, 
products with inside the environment. The aviation industry is very, very similar. And we're trying to take these kind of like fly-by-the-wire, very um, multi-fail proof systems and make them digital and then try and sync them up and then try and make the customer facing side of that very, very convenient and integrate all these real time live pieces. These are things that are not like they're not scaling and meshing in the way that everybody thinks they are. And so you really have to kind of compare apples to apples here and understand, well, the just of what she's saying is viable. And yes, I believe that that can be improved upon. It's not as simple as just fix it, right? Like just now tell me how. I think that a lot of people miss the how of all this, like from a high level. Yeah, I get you want to secure all the things you want these five controls in place. You want to hit these compliance marks, but how with the budget you have, the resources you have, the time you have, and to maintain a viable business, how do you do that? Well, and I, you know, it's a great juncture. I, I, I think we've gone, it's nine thirteen, uh, and we're on segment three and we haven't mentioned PCI yet. Uh, and I, I think Jeff wants to <laughs> Yes, I do. Very nice. I love uh, the cards. Crap. Drink. <laughs> but, but, because but Jeff, how's I'm your battery? The, at the, my, oh, my battery. Uh, what did I do with my battery? Is that your PCI battery? Your PCI. Oh. <laughs> Wait, wrong card. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I love the cards. I think it's awesome. So, so the article, it begins with. Uh, and and this is very common uh, for for companies that are breached. They were hit. They were a target of a highly sophisticated cyber Ugh, attack all the time. Right? Um, what does that mean? And and it means oh shit, we got caught. Throw that out there, and so we'll get pity from people. But then the next sentence is the result: email addresses and travel data, travel details of nine million customers, and. Credit card details, including CVV numbers Ooh. of 2,208 customers. Please tell me what's wrong with that statement. You should PCI. not. Well, hold on. You oh. should never. You uh, PCI. Uh, one of the things in there, right, says uh, me as a merchant, I should not store CVV. The way I ding, understand ding, it, ding, Jeff, ding, ding, is that? Did I understand ding. it correctly? Absolutely. I you understood should, it correctly, and Jeff said, yes, I understood it correctly. Like, wow, they, they should I'm learning. Not, <laughs> they should not, well, unless they were capturing transactions, you know, while they were being processed. Right. But probably they had profiles of people for, you know, credit card numbers on file so that you could, you know, you know reserve a flight and click yep. on the saved credit card. If they were saving the CVV numbers, big, huge violation, mm -hmm. which means they fundamentally don't get security. They fundamentally don't get compliance. So it probably wasn't a highly sophisticated right. attacker. We're probably going to find out in the days and weeks and months to come that you know it was default passwords and bad configurations and the yeah. usual suspects somewhere along the line. Right. Larry, you're holding up some... You've got 13 <laughs> hours, 37 minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! On your your SD card. You you so leak, you so leak, I love you. <laughs> You've got a your SD card's bigger than Tyler's, is what you're saying. Very. It's a, yes. Oh, See, there he goes. More than double. More than double. Just impressive. You, Larry, love your SD card. <laughs> you so leak, Larry. All wow, I have to say is there were a lot of that. there were a lot of breach stories this week. A lot of What's breach stories. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, come on. Can we do can we do the story Microsoft has embraced open source? I love that story. It's amazing, oh, yes, please. right? Please. I, and so I mean, I, I've been paying attention. I mean, let's just put this out there. I, I'm a huge Linux advocate, you know, a couple of years ago I was like, I want to go all Linux. And I tell you what, it as much as I would not have admitted that at the time, it was rocky in the beginning, right? I mean, I was switching from from Apple and Mac over to Android and Linux. Like, it was a little rocky in the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, John Strand really kind of planted the seed with me this week, especially. And he's like, dude, I, I, I'm all in on Linux. And he was even the one that was like, I love Linux, but, like, I still got to use Windows because PowerPoint and all this other stuff, right? He's like, now there is this opportunity to go all Linux. And he was like, Ubuntu 20.04 is... Like I'm like, dude, I'm right there with you, right? Like we were totally nerding out on this on Enterprise Security Weekly this week. Then I see this article that kind of really validates John and I's kind of train of thinking in this whole thing that Microsoft has done. I mean, to say it's done a complete 180. Oh yeah. In terms of yeah. open source oh, yeah. is an understatement, right? Microsoft. I mean, there's just. If you go back to early emails, even before this bomber quote, right, in the which I'll read to you in a moment, even before that, Bill Gates's uh, uh, communications to the community, it, you can go back and read them. Like they are documented uh, and like attacking anyone who wanted to gain access to their source code in the early days. Uh, and we're talking like Altair systems early days, right? <laughs> Go back yeah, and yeah, like, really, wait, early, like yeah. really early was like, no, the software that I create, Gates was like, this is mine and I'm going to sell it, right? Open source absolutely challenges that ideal like a thousand percent. And Microsoft was very, very anti-open source, right? That was their commodity, was their software. People should not just pay for software, but license software, is the was the Microsoft ideal, right? Which is very interesting from a lot of perspectives. And in 2001, right, former CEO Steve Ballmer famously branded Linux as a cancer that attaches itself in an intellectual property sense to everything it touches. That was in 2001. Now you come full circle. The leadership at Microsoft is like, yeah, open source is cool. Like basically Azure is 50 plus percent running Linux. Uh, Microsoft Windows is running Linux, like fully supported Linux kernel mm -hmm. running Linux. Like this is an unbelievable uh, crossroads I think we're at now. Uh, John Strand is really, I don't know if he said this on the air or not, but is really calling for like, okay, we've said, we say this all the time every year, right? This is the year of the Linux desktop. Like, I, I think it's really a reality, uh, to be quite honest. If we look at what Chrome OS has accomplished, which is a Linux-based OS, and we look at the advances, especially in the more modern Linux kernels, 20.04 was uh, absolutely a turning point for me. Jeff's holding up a card that says UID equals zero. I, I, will, uh, I, I will concede that security is, is not quite there. Uh, in, in terms of Linux. When we look at all the different container breakouts, they're basically abuses of Linux primitives. And, and that scares me, right? But I think technology-wise, it's a really exciting time uh, for Linux and those of us that have been involved with Linux you know, for 20 years or more 
uh, it, it, it's just awesome. And uh, uh, two, honor, two things. Honor, uh, well, sorry, hold on, hold on. Larry, and then drop. So, two quick things, Paul. I mean, I think I, I'm really hoping to see that. Um, I tried to make the switch to Linux on the desktop uh, a while back, and the apps that I needed to use on Linux were all horrible. Yeah. Like, either on Windows or the Mac, they were way better. And, you know, I'm quite honestly starting to reevaluate potentially using Windows on the desktop. And I never thought I'd say that after going to the Mac. And, right. And Windows over Linux, specifically when we start seeing Microsoft's adoption of you know, Linux kernel and mm-hmm. Linux utilities. And then uh, this week, uh, what, the Microsoft Developer Conference or whichever it is, uh, is going on this week, and they released Terminal and a package manager from the command line for Windows. So basically, I mean, like, what, I you're, saying, Larry, but what you're saying, Larry, is I'm going to switch to Windows because it also gives me access to Linux, and I get the most, best of both worlds. Yep. Getting there. Getting there. It's like getting a, there, a, right? A, a, yeah, stable, so, a stable window manager, great applications, and the power of the Linux backend. You know, that's what does it for me for the Mac. Right. Is I have this really sexy interface. Things look great. They, for the most part, they just work. And I can tinker with stuff on the backend and do all the things that I want to do. Like Windows, yeah. is, for me, it's a lot harder. And Linux, I can tinker with all the stuff on the backend. The problem is I can tinker with the stuff on the backend and nothing fucking works. Like, experience this week uh go to install uh pcscd scan on uh on linux and it requires another package that you need to install but it requires pcscd scan to install like we're still in this dependency dependency, yeah yeah Yeah, john was playing around with something and i don't know what it was called uh it was basically like a almost like a container but not uh, basically statically compile all the binaries and put it in kind of like a container kind of thing to deal with that dependency issue. D- I think the issue that I have in terms of like Linux versus Windows is, I mean, like there's some stuff that you're just, you're like not going to get with Linux today. Uh, so I was, you know, bored and I'm like quarantine. I'm like, I think we need a VR headset because that sounds really cool. And then I look into it. I'm like, well, I thankfully I have a Windows box, and that would enable me to do that, right? <laughs> like, I there are just certain things today that I think do absolutely require Windows, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's what's gonna uh, keep people on the Windows platform. And it's encouraging to see that. Well, by the way, if you run Windows, you can still run Linux at the same time, right? So I, I'd like to make a comment. Go ahead, um, Jeff. I'm about where Larry is right now. Um, I'm getting a little bit tired of some of the mistakes that Apple is making mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, laptop platform. Apple's doing doing all the great things with all the toys, but I don't want a toy. Right? What's wrong with your What's wrong with your Apple? You don't even have it right now. Uh, yeah, that's the but, point. I think he's making. That that's that's. Somewhat uh, tangential, but that is a that is a related point. Um, my concern uh, with Linux on the Windows desktop so far has been lack of raw socket support, and I mm. hope they address it. Um, raw sockets are kind of needed if you're a pen tester, uh, and you're going to fire up like a Kali Linux or, or something like that on the Windows desktop. 
But I'm very close to going towards a Windows desktop uh, for the next generation that I use uh, because the flexibility is there and they're starting to um, do interesting things. Uh, finally, I don't think I can make the leap over to um, Linux as the primary desktop and, and going in the other direction. But I, I'm I'm thinking the two are basically converging and it's kind of be going to be a wash. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I'd lo- I'd love to do a segment where I I try and convince everyone to go full Linux and and you guys try and convince me not. I think that'd be awesome. Well, you know, this, so this, be fun. what would what what would kill would Windows as a desktop is 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 if the Office team developed a native uh, Linux product. And that, well, that's what John's saying. Driven. I mean, John's saying I can just use Office three sixty five, and if that runs on Linux, then like I'm good. Yeah, but right. in a browser, it's not the same experience. It just Interesting. Not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. So. You know, John's John's great. Lo- love John. He's my boss and all that good stuff. But when I'm cranking out but. an 85-page report, I want the native MS Word client, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, we could give you a guacamole server to a Windows box. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'm super impressed with guacamole and its oh, ability for room. Uh, like I-, I was like, holy crap, that is awesome technology. I, I'm going to tell you right now, if the Office team at Microsoft says we're going to do a native Linux uh, implementation, they would nearly kill the Windows desktop. Mm. That would be my prediction. Mm. Um, it, it, because that's been that's been a statement for decades now. They have been driving the sale of Windows as a platform. That product. I mean, at this point, we should like. Why aren't we all just going LaTeX? I mean, why do why are we stuck on Office? And oh, I'm an Office fuck? Fan, Tyler. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for, and Tyler, for like, what, I, are you like a, a professor at a university now? And you like, what and, is, and, like and, he's growing and, younger for, and older at the same time. What is happening? And what happens with the tank top? And for yeah, really. and for the record, it's not latex; it's latex. Latex. I'm just is that not even like mini cats? <laughs> I think we should edit native postscript. God damn it. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like word perfect was was that right like you it was the perfect word. it was no, 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 no. basically like a word document h like tagged language basically right wrap this shit up but <laughs> after that comment. Uh, wow yeah <laughs> I mean, just with like, all right I, hold, we got to get back to some security stories before we go specifically you forgot you forgot that I had a comment to make. Jeff, make on. your comment, and then we're going to talk about, uh, we'll talk uh, about this Qmail and uh, DGB. I forgot what you had said, but I was going to comment, and this was for your your the benefit of your kids and the the homeschooling. My granddaughter discovered today that there's this thing called Nick Talk. Nick Talk is that like TikTok? It's tick. It's Nickelodeon TikTok. Interesting. Sounds anyway, terrifying. go on. It sounds terrible. It does um, sound <laughs> So there, uh, my story number 12, I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Um, Daniel J. Bernstein, did I say that correctly? Right? Is the very prolific uh, computer scientist and security engineer, created QMail, uh, uh, DGB DNS, right? Um, and basically put out one of the first, like, basically bug bounties. and was like, hey, I wrote this code... In 1998, and I challenge anyone to find a security vulnerability. Now, in 2005, there was a. In, you got to go read this article, right? Because there's so many facts in here, 
and uh, I haven't written an article in a long time where basically like I was like I could summarize this article but it is very well written and covers all the facts like you should just go read it my story number 12 wiki.securityweekly.com it's episode 652 um there was a researcher uh Georgi Ganinsky um found three vulnerabilities in 2005 essentially I want to say they were not with a integer overflow uh, that relied on a certain amount of memory being available to the process. Uh, and in 2005, the QMail process did not provide enough memory in its default configuration to allow people to access and exploit this vulnerability. The exploits were real, but dependent on the memory access, right? Fast forward to today, Qualys researchers discovered that there's another process that runs as part of QMail that doesn't have the memory restrictions as the other QMail process. And these uh, vulnerabilities are, in fact, uh, exploitable. Uh, now, when uh, DJB said, like, uh, basically, uh, he said that I run the QMail service with a low memory, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, restrictions and that mitigates these vulnerabilities, uh, it just the way this whole story unfolded, I mean, we look at Qmail, I, I, I largely think in the security community, as one of the most secure pieces of software out there. I mean, look, if you wrote something in 1998, and it's really only had three or maybe four CVEs attributed to it, you're doing pretty damn good. In fact, you're probably yeah. one of the most secure pieces of software out there, right? Um, and, and Dan, you know, stopped uh, developing this in 1998, um, has gone on to do all kinds of quantum cryptography research and all kinds of stuff. Uh, what's amazing to me is that Qmail is not the only piece of software that Dan wrote that's awesome, right? Uh, DGB DNS and, and a series of other uh, pieces of software. Just a, an amazing story that, uh, you know, uh, how many times have we seen a piece of software that was written in the late 90s that is that resilient that there were three CVEs that were found uh, 15 years ago that today people figured out how to exploit that still, if you've implemented it correctly, are not vulnerable to even just those three vulnerabilities. Like the whole thing is just an amazing story. Uh, and I really do encourage our listeners to go uh, read up on that because if we can borrow lessons from the implementation of this software, uh, I think we'll all be in a better place. Comments, challenges, anyone challenge? Yeah. No, I'm uh, I, I'm looking at the uh, Daniel's uh, bio because I, yeah. I want to say you mentioned DJB DNS and this yep. threw a thing to me in that I, I want to say that I've, rel I've interacted with Dan recently on a project based on uh, our Weyland project for analysis of GPS satellites and oh, their nice. their health. So, like, he's still out there doing this crazy stuff. Doing, yeah, if I remember, if it's the same Dan, crazy, crazy smart dude. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, 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 and part of like when you read this article, like, go read up on Dan and not just his accomplishments in creating Qmail, right? Which largely, I, in, in some of this I take to heart, 
uh, Joff, I don't know if, uh, like, I, when we worked for universities, right, in a pretty similar time frame, I was a Unix admin, and we were largely oh, doing... I was too. <laughs> right? And we were largely doing send mail, and we were like... Yep. WTF? Like, can you, someone yeah, just write some write goddamn code that can? Right? Can someone just write some goddamn <laughs> code that can pass email messages without being exploitable? And, and then hey, I look, have to mad, go mad, mad respect. If you could write a send mail from the ground up, and I could at the time, and those send mail configs were oh. seriously messed up. <laughs> right, and I think that was absolutely part of its downfall. Right? Was that sendmail.cf and all? Oh, it was just awful. And I remember, you know, being the security person, being the Unix admin, I was like, oh, someone created a Qmail. And I actually did some Qmail installations uh, after that because I was like, oh, screw that. Like at work, I'm dealing with sendmail oh, and too. it's a nightmare, right? Like if I'm going to run it, because back in the day, you would run your own MTA, right? And I was like, I'm doing Qmail. And I did some installations of it because I'm like, this software is awesome. Uh, so it's just kind of a cool, really awesome read and, and just really kind of fun story uh, to go True through. True that. But when, when Postfix came out, then the sun came out completely. So I was, you know, I was sold with Postfix. Yeah, Postfix, Postfix is definitely another, yeah, definitely another contender in that space uh, for sure. I think that uh, Utopia is that none of us have to worry about running MTAs anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we leave that to all, all right. <laughs> hey, I have a real quick question. Reading through the article, um, if you're a a a company and you're running Debian and you've got the Qmail on it and you've got Qualys or or whomever, I guess at this point, running a scan and finding these new vulnerabilities, where and it says that there's an updated version available. Where do you go to get it? That, so it doesn't yeah, say that it's in a the great article. question, Jeff. Yeah. Um, it 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 does sound to me like Qmail has been forked um, in, into multiple different kind of distributions. So I would look at w which kind of flavor of Qmail you're running now. It also uh, talks about there's a vulnerability in like one of the plugins for Qmail as well. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think it's going to require some investigation, like. Because development stopped, which is kind of weird, right? Like, development stopped, and then some of the distributions, pick, like Debian, picked up development of it, is my understanding, um, to, to kind of push it forward. So, uh, I don't have a definitive answer. Well, I, I, guess answer there, a, a, I guess what I'm beating around the bush on is, you know, and and it's PCI related, but if you're a if you're a company and then you're and you're having to pass a scan for whatever reason, and you're and you're seeing this vulnerability and you're going to try to fix it, uh, I mean maybe it's in the CVV. I should look at the CVV. Maybe it points to where you go to get the fix. But how do you fix unsupported applications that have not been updated for 22 years? So. Uh Qualys wrote up. So this is from the article. Uh, Qualys yeah, wrote a patch for Debian's Qmail package that fixes right. the Qmail verify issues, which is the Qmail verify. I think was one of the plugins, right? In all three CVEs in Qmail, uh, the latter by hard coding a safe upper memory limit in the alloc function, which makes total makes total sense, right? Actually, a pretty easy fix. Probably pretty safe to implement, in my opinion, from what I know. Uh, uh, about you know services running on Linux written in C, right? Using that using that function, probably pretty safe. Um, and then there's an updated version 
1.5 of Qmail Verify with the issues fixed is available for download. The developers of not Qmail, so they forked Qmail into a project called not Qmail. They wrote their own patches for all three 2005 CVEs and have started to systematically fix all integer overflows and signness errors in Qmail, which largely, I mean, if you look at, if I think about what all the other signedness issues are in Qmail, the fact that it survived for 20 plus years without major incident and, you know, us even covering it on the show probably means they're not critical vulnerabilities. However, probably still pertinent that you uh, keep up with the latest versions. It's funny, Paul. Uh, you know, I usually look up uh, vulnerability information in CVEs using the the Tenable plugin site, yeah. and they don't have these two CVEs listed, right? Well, because it was largely they're from Qualys. Well, because it was, but it was largely dependent on the memory limitations, right? It was Dan's kind of a original rebuttal to the 2005 uh, researcher who was like, "These are vulnerabilities," but they are very greatly controlled by how much memory uh, each process can run. So there was a very valid workaround in my assessment of this vulnerability um, where things might not check for this vulnerability because of the workarounds that may be inherent to uh, the configuration. Very interesting. Of course, it's, it's also not in the National Vulnerability Database, so I don't know what that means. I I I looked at some of them in the and uh, I looked at the there was an original article from George Ganinsky that talks about all three. Uh, there's an article on his blog and in the original like full disclosure type mailing list kind of thing uh, about mm -hmm. these CVEs. Is it is a fascinating story. And uh, for the record, uh, I was wrong. It wasn't Dan. It was Bert between the DNS and GPS thing. So gotcha. You could see how I was accepted. confused. Yep. No, naked. All right. Well, it's uh, it's getting into the hinter hours. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Wait. I, I think last Lee story. Anyone go? Stories. Anyone want to pick one a more, last story? story? Last story. What, what, how about one from Lee? Well, yeah, I was we should actually, do a Lee story. Well, I was, I, I'm not, there's a couple I wanted to choose from. I just am having trouble picking between them, although I was intrigued by the iPhone hacks are no longer worth a lot of money. Um, we covered that last and, week. Uh, so pick another one. Yeah. Is, pick another one. Next. <laughs> Love you, Lee. Pick another um, one. <laughs> how about the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Mandrake malware mm. story? Mm-hmm. Oh. That that was hot you know, news. And a, I did not some look malware in. that's been sitting around for four years. I did not look into this one. What is what is the deal with this malware? So this one, I was trying to remember what I, I did. Some little, I researched it quickly before pasting it up there. Um, but it targets specific Android devices to provide complete control. But it's really stealth and under the cover, so nobody was seeing it until finally. Somebody realized what was going on, um, and they may have you know tens of thousands of victims. With the, um, Google Play picked it up finally, uh, 
things like Abfix, Coincast, SnapTube, and a few other things. Uh, it's just kind of interesting that they this was basically relied on uh, reviews of applications. People were saying these applications are cool, even though they had the malware in them, and that's how people got it put out everywhere. Was it, it, was, uh, it was it basically fraudulent uh, reviews, Lee? You think that? Yeah. So it, it's it's kind of interesting. We talk about um, you know bots and you know bypassing things like reCAPTCHA uh, and all that stuff. Um, it, it, it's interesting the kind of intersection between abusing technology and social engineering to get these apps in the store to violate the trust the user has with the ratings, right? Uh, I see some of that on Amazon. It's kind of somewhat related to uh, price gouging as well. Um, like if I want to price gouge on Amazon, it may artificially uh, inflate my ratings so that there are reviews that this product is great and they buy it at an inflated rate. Therefore, as a consumer, I have to be aware of what the actual cost of that device is. Um, and I say I say device, it could be any product, right? In, in my case, I was looking at a specific, in this case, audio device, and I was like, oh, it's great. Like, I can get it from Amazon, but it's 100 bucks more than I should be paying for it. I know that because I, I bought a lot of these Scarlett, Focus, you know, Focusrite Scarlett uh, solo third generations. The price should be $109. Right. They're charging $185 or $190 for it. And that's bogus. I can go to another website, uh, and I'll give props to B&H Photo Video, who is right not far from us in New York, and can ship for free. And they've got it for 109, which is what the price should be, right? It's it's the same thing with these apps, right? We rely mm-hmm. on, and and I'm guilty of it too. I look at how many downloads does it have, how many reviews does it have, and what's the average across those reviews. If it crosses a certain threshold. I'm like, okay, it must be an okay app, right? Yeah. Obviously, that's not the case. Now, I don't recognize any of the apps uh, that are listed here, thankfully, which means I haven't installed it on my device, right? Um, But it's kind of scary from the the app store perspective that they're bending and twisting and basically committing fraud uh, on that trust relationship that we have as users with the app store and these specific apps. Remember, you used to be able to see who wrote the various reviews, at least on the Apple side. They had the names, and then they started hiding all that. And when they, when you could see it, I would look at some apps, and it was like all the reviews were from people at, you know, the company that wrote the app. We're all right. giving it five stars. Uh, real, real credible reviews there, folks. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting. It's an interesting app. It also um, like won't fire on devices that don't have a SIM card, or if they have a SIM card issued by Verizon or China Mobile. So it's it's hit or miss whether it's actually fired when you see it. So they're doing a pretty good job of being stealthy. And there's some other things in the article that talk about other ways it's being stealthy. I just thought it was kind of cool that they were hiding out pretty good, but. I know if it if it's got admin and something else happens, it'll wipe the phone, factory reset it for you, just 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 for just for pleasure. Um. It's it's amazing the game of whack a mole that certainly Google has to uh, you know play with all these apps. Uh, Apple as well. What was that noise? What is it? What is going on? Something like air, somebody letting air out of a balloon. 
I, I think it was Larry. I blame Larry. Hey, you know what? I, I think I should take us out tonight. It's, he who denied it, supplied it. <laughs> Joff! Joff, that will conclude this episode of Paul Security Weekly. Joff, take us out. Over and... <laughs> out.